Welcome to Ask a Jew, where a secular, sinful Israeli speaks to her holy religious friend. I'm Yael with Chaylea. We are together. Yes. In the studio in New York City. I don't like it. You don't like, like it? I like you 3,000 miles away. Yeah, yeah. I like seeing you freeze when we talk. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I feel like we could make that microphone go down just a Should little bit. Just a little bit. It's hilarious. I mean- <laughs> but... It's not my fault. I'm four eleven. Okay. <laughs> Do you want us to get you a, a booster? Seat? Yeah. Do you have a phone book? Do you have a phone book here? Funny. Um, okay, Would you like to introduce better. the the male voice? We have such a special guest. Really, our Godfather. I don't even know how do I describe who this is. I think like like our our. I've always described our relationship with the fifth column is like they're our father but i don't know they don't know about us recognize they know about us but they like send us a christmas card like once a year definitely like, deadbeat dad yeah <laughs> they have a new family now we have with us matt welch in person not matt walsh by not the way matt. we couldn't get him no we, 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 uh, we hate him i hate him i mean don't say that he might want to come on the podcast no, one day we're not he has a lot of followers oh okay fine <laughs> but we have the way better version this is true Wait, isn't it true that Solomon Rushdie blocked you on Twitter? Is that true? That is, is uh, sadly true. <laughs> and there's there would be no reason for him to do that. Like yeah. I haven't gone out of my way to be a jerk to Solomon Rushdie <laughs> over the years. I've been kind of, I've been kind of trying. What are your feelings on fatwas? Maybe you tweeted something pro fatwa. <laughs> no, I've been anti. You know, really since 1989. <laughs> wow. Um, when but he I, thinks I so. Like people, but he thinks you're Matt. Walsh, that's probably. the only explanation that makes any sense. Um, uh, like I was just clicking on something that he was tweeting and I'm like, oh, you're blocked. Oh my God. <laughs> Why would he block me? Unless he, you know, listened to a fifth column members only podcast and I got <laughs> so drunk that I made a joke about like stabbing someone in the face. Which is possible. It's is, always possible. Oh, definitely possible. But I'm a nice drunk. I'm not a you mean are. one. No, yeah, so, you're not a mean drunk. Yeah. No, I've had the pleasure of having you over for Shabbat dinners. Yeah, You've been of, very, very pleasant. Been very, very drunk. Speaking of drunk. And you were nice. <laughs> <laughs> my kids were there. On their, exactly. They were drunk, too. Yeah. You behaved. Yeah. <laughs> well, my kids certainly did not behave. Well, she acted like a kid. Yeah. I mean, which is yeah, fine. She's adorable. Um, okay, so we have so many topics to cover. Wait, yeah. should we tell our listeners, because we, we do have a lot of listeners who listen to the fifth column and who came to us through the fifth column, which is very nice, but... I mean, we should probably tell the like my relatives who don't like, know, like, who your, <laughs> <laughs> like your relatives. But the fifth column is a podcast, mm-hmm. a very successful one. Um, and Chayal and I discovered it during COVID. I mean, I did right. during COVID. Did you during COVID as well? A little bit before. I, I discovered it through the Central Park Karen. That was my like initiation, I think. Um, and then we met Chayal and I met on a Zoom call back when Zoom parties were like fun. <laughs> Of the fifth column. So this is really, you know, very, very special to us. That's right. But other than that, like other than hosting fifth column, you do other things. Right. So I've been working for Reason Magazine uh, for 20 years most of that time. I was editor-in-chief of it from 2008 to 2016. I actually met Camille. Didn't meet Camille, but like uh, got close to him because he and I did a uh, television program together along with Kennedy, MTV's Kennedy, Mm -hmm. uh, called The Independence that was on Fox Business Network. And uh, if – Anyone has seen that and listened to the fifth column, they will sort of understand the connective tissue. <laughs> it's uh, people talking, hopefully with some intelligence, hopefully with some humor, jackassing about the news. Uh, and, you know, uh, if this was on from the end of 2013 to the beginning of 2015, so Ferguson happened, right, uh, in oh, the middle wow. of that. And mm-hmm. as you guys uh, probably saw, um, 
because it was discussed in our last uh, episode, uh, one of the we used to do a special uh, uh, the Friday episode we'd we'd would do on a topic that would be less newsy because we would tape it on a Wednesday or actually we tape it on a Tuesday because mm-hmm. Kennedy back then lived in California, so we'd come and do four shows in like oh. fifty four hours. Where was this here in New York? Is it here in New York? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a pretty hilarious. She had since moved out uh, over here to make it easier, but. Um, so we would say, all right, let's have the Friday show. We'll tape it on Tuesday. We'll have a two show day and that'll be kind of on a broader topic. One of the first ones was about race. Mm-hmm. And if we were going to do a show about race, Camille absolutely was going to insist that we have to have an entire segment in which he was just dropping N words oh, no. and oh. talking about the N word while Kennedy and I were just like, Oh, oh my God. God. Just, yeah. now, Camille Foster is not white for our <laughs> listeners. I think that would, he doesn't she, present to the unknowing outside world right. as non-black. <laughs> right. He's a race abolitionist, but uh, I, uh, he's crazy. Anyways, uh, the idea of the fifth column actually came from Kennedy's husband. Cause, um, oh. because in uh, January of 20, uh, uh, 15, uh, Camille and I were, the pips were uh, hived away from Gladys Knight. Um, and um, and uh, her husband, then husband, Dave Lee's sweetheart of a guy, and he was early adopter into the podcast world. Uh, and uh, like he's friends with Mark Marin and, and these types of guys. And he's like, you guys should like keep the energy going, find someone like a Moynihan uh, who's funny and, uh, and just sort of like do what you guys do mm-hmm. um, and have fun. And I'm like, cool, what's a podcast? And also <laughs> my daughter was born literally that week, the, the same week that uh, Kennedy's news show took off. So I was kind of tired because I was the editor-in-chief of a magazine also doing a daily show on television. Wow. Um, it was a bit fatiguing and had a baby. So like, okay, let's <laughs> let's calm down. So we started a year later, basically. Wow. That's the nice. genesis of the fifth column. Were you maybe. friends with Moynihan already? Yeah, so Michael worked um, at Reason uh, beginning – in like 2006, 2007, um, and he had uh, Nick had poached him, or he had come over from Sweden. He was uh, involved with like uh, Swedish think tank type of uh, places. Timbro uh, is one sort of sort of in the broader Johan Norberg um, universe, multiverse. And I remember meeting Michael. Nick's like, oh, this Matt, you you lived in Europe. You'll like this guy." <laughs> and uh, I met him like a CEI, Competitive Enterprise Institute dinner, which is. Uh, libertarian nerd prom in DC, <laughs> and uh, and Michael was just like I hated him right right off the bat. Like, <laughs> I could see what this asshole was like, um, but uh, no, he's very very funny and uh, smart, and um, and he worked at Reason. Uh, I became editor in chief and. Uh, at the end of 2007 and moved from L.A. out there, and Michael was on staff there. So we worked mm-hmm. together for a, c- a couple of years, and then he uh, then he peaced out. Can you explain what a libertarian is? No. I get I get that question all the time because we often mention, you mm-hmm. know, that we— There's a misconception that a libertarian is anybody who's— Like at not least that, re- conservative Not conservative. Liberal. Like when I was in grad school, I got that a lot because people are like— you're not liberal, but you're also not like a neo-Nazi. So you must be one of those like libertarian types. <laughs> yeah. like, I get, it's like a catch-all for people who are moderate. I know that's not the real definition, but that's what the outside world thinks sometimes. Well, or actually they see it as they're unusually extremist uh, because libertarians can be uh, pretty out there. Right. Just mm-hmm. like, you know, there should be no government, um, mm-hmm. that uh, all – all the only rights that really matter are property rights. There are extreme mm-hmm. versions of, of any ideology. Big fans of drugs. Uh, big fans of drugs. Uh, libertarians 
uh, generally all agree, even the ones that hate each other, which is all of them, because libertarians are <laughs> fractious. I like Jews, yeah. Uh, uh, very much uh, a, a little bit less blood spilled in, in the uh, yet. Uh, in the yet, yeah. I I'm, I'm still have some hope for, for them in the uh, <laughs> coming years. Been doing this for thousands of years. You guys just started. Um, but generally, people who think that the that government is too big, that uh, it, it takes on and encroaches upon too many rights of individuals. Um, and that if you shrunk that out, um, that would be a better solution. That's sort of like a starting ground. It mm -hmm. tends to attract people who are more um, philosophically oriented. I'm not, by the way. So that's one of the reasons why a lot of libertarians don't like me, mm -hmm. uh, besides just general personality <laughs> things. But like a lot of people come there through philosophy. They come there right. through Ayn Rand, who you know m fashioned herself as a philosopher. Uh, so a lot of philosophers disagree about that. Or from economists who worked in the philosophical tradition, so like the Scottish Enlightenment type of people, 19th century people. So they come there from this sort of looking for... First principle yeah, yeah. ideas. Mm, okay. So people who are attracted to that, there's a, a, a definite over-indexing among that with libertarians. And that also takes you away from um, a lot of the usual right, left, or whatever um, political partisan tussles of the day because you are tethered more towards an idea. Right. Um, for my uh, bigger tent and sloppier intellectual way of thinking about libertarianism is like a lot of it's like founding fathers stuff. Plus, maybe it's it's not maybe definitely the whole slavery thing was pretty bad, and like the women <laughs> not being able to vote was bad, and like right. you have to ex expand those yeah. uh, expand those uh, rights. But like the the notions that were in the founding generation of the of country, that which governs best governs least, um, and to pursue your happiness, right? Mm -hmm. Like that is an inalienable right, um, right. Uh, and, and I think we always sleep on that as a concept. Like that means. Um, uh, don't get in my way as I figure out what I'm doing and yeah. as well. And, and that doesn't mean you have a right to, uh, you know, things. Mm -hmm. It means you have a right to be left alone enough to figure it out on your own or to uh, arrange contracts with other people. I think that's kind of like fundamental libertarianism. And there's about 75 different offshoots, all of which are fractious and boring and, yeah. and all hate me. Well, I, I feel like that where I overlap with libertarians is, is not – I have no problem with the concept of government. I just know how poorly it functions, mm -hmm. which is right. why I think, you know, other alternatives are usually much better. But I would love to have a very, you know, high-functioning government to, you know, if if a high-functioning government could be involved in citizens' lives for the benefit of the citizens. I just don't think that's realistic. But I'm not opposed to the idea of it. Yeah, so uh, Are libertarians there libertarians like me? Yes. Um, and in fact, there's a whole pragmatic kind of strain. A lot of it has been associated with reason over the years, particularly with the work of the Reason Foundation, which publishes uh, Reason. Um, uh, Bob Poole, who's still working and still incredible uh, as our director of, of policy for transportation, other things like that, he wrote a classic book. Um, called uh, – I forget exactly what it was called, like privatizing City Hall or something mm. along – very close to that. Yeah. Um, but this was back in the day when those notions were incredibly radical and what is a place in the world that is seen by those types of libertarians as a model of governance? Um, it's a place within walking distance of where me and Hialeah grew up. Yeah. Um, we we're both from Long Beach, but it's Lakewood, California. I actually, my first job was in Parks and Recreation Department, believe uh -huh. it or not, for the city of Lakewood. City of Lakewood – 
which was built in like a week and a half in, uh, in <laughs> around more. 1950. It was amazing. Yeah. I mean, go read DJ Waldy's Holy Land, which I will likely refer to again at uh, some point in this podcast. But it, it's just an amazing post-war GI Bill suburban grid tract. They mm-hmm. built 50,000 homes in literally a year and a half. Wow. Um, all pretty much first-time home buyers, um, all like cheap, $7,500, um, uh, I think was the average. And uh, Lakewood said, here's how we're going to organize our city. Um, there's no reason for us to own a garbage department. Mm-hmm. We don't know anything about garbage. Yeah. Um, but other people do. So we'll yeah. contract that out. So Lakewood became one of the first contract wow. cities. So almost all of its main services, including at the beginning at least police and everything else, um, they're going to take it out to the, the highest or the best bidder. Right. And if you do a bad job, we'll, we'll take you out. And so Lakewood is this sort of uh, island in the sort of South Bay surrounded by governmental dysfunction in places like <laughs> Bellflower, true. Hawaiian Gardens, for crying out loud. Com- oh, Hawaiian Gardens, that sounds uh, exotic. Oh, uh, it's, it's I like exotic. Those, Hawaiian Gardens. Those casinos oh, yeah. are certainly exotic. Those card clubs. <laughs> uh, and and we're, this, we're in the North Long Beach part. Long Beach has uh, it's, it's a much larger – so uh, it's work. So Lakewood is working. Lakewood has worked, and it's attractive to those your type of pragmatic libertarians who says, mm-hmm. "Look, I would love government, but let's just uh, recognize what it can and can't do." Mm-hmm. The other thing Lakewood did, which I appreciate, is that they said, "We want to. Uh, what we care about is parks because we're going to have a bunch of young families with a bunch of kids, and we love baseball because we're fanatical about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're we will run a parks department, and it's going to be awesome. And this is what we care about. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to pay for everything by building the world's largest shopping mall." Um, which was the world's largest shopping mall for uh, like a, a minute and a half there in the 70s. It was. I go there all the time, the Liquid Mall. Liquid Mall. Um, There's a Costco there now, so I, uh, I shop there. Oh, Orthodox Jews love Costco. I know. But I mean, Hartwell Park yeah, is great. all the kids. I mean, Hartwell is city of Long Beach. Is it? Uh, yes, it is. Oh, uh, that's it, not Lakewood? Um, but it's it, it borders uh, Lakewood, yeah. but yes. So uh, why aren't there more Lakewoods? Um, there's a couple. There was one city that uh, happened in suburban uh, Georgia, not far from Atlanta, that was more aggressively ideologically a contract city. Um, uh, I don't know is the answer. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I did an interview actually with DJ Waldy, who in addition to being the author of Holy Land and a really good writer and a thinker, but he's worked at the city of Lakewood for 40-odd right. years, just oh, wow. like as a functionary. Okay. Um, but he uh, – And he still likes it. That's pretty amazing. He still likes it. Part of his um, uh, book, which came out in the 90s, right, is the Southern California was just seen as a hellscape and, mm-hmm. and kind of rightly so. His was this – kind of defense of suburbia, which is interesting for me because I, you know, I grew up in suburbia and didn't hate it, but I was really happy to leave it. Mm. And I have left it behind decisively from the age of 18 and will never go back um, <laughs> except to visit. Um, but one of the things that he said is like the the critiques of suburbia are that it like stifles out individualism. And yet, uh, if you look at the lived experience of people in, in uh, like where I grew up in Lakewood Village, it's called, although it's officially Long Beach. You know, they they had three or four models of houses. That's it. Right. You yeah. recognize them. those oh, three. Oh, I know all. The, I know the four the, models. The three yeah. bedroom, two bathroom yeah. porch yeah. here. You know, driveway yeah. there. Yeah. Um, and if you drive on those streets now, you can drive on them, and you will see on a block maybe two or three. Um, that still look like the original yeah. they did because what happened is that people made money. They got rich. There was a real estate uh, boom where they got they got into the middle or upper middle classes. They added on. They tore yeah. it down. They built this. They made a McMansion. And so now everything looks a little bit different yeah. uh, than yeah. it originally does. And that was part of Waldy's argument is that it's not as uh, anti-individualistic as you think. And it allowed mm-hmm. for a kind of middle class flourishing and experimentation, which uh, a lot of bien pensants kind of uh, liberals uh, – yeah. uh, 
turn their noses up. It's interesting you're saying that because I walk around, like, I live in Bixby Knolls, which is very close to Lakewood. Rich people. It's not. It's not. But it's very, every house is different, you know? If you go south into Orange County, I mean, it's, it looks like, what what are those movies where everything's the same? Like the Stepford Wives or whatever? Like every single house is a twin to the next one and I can't stand it. But Lakewood does not look like that. I mean, I'm sure it's, Lakewood did look like that. I, I know, but it boys, doesn't but look it doesn't. like that anymore. And also, it's, some people want to live like that. That's, do that's they? fine. I mean, do you want to pull into a driveway where I like? I literally wouldn't know if it was my house or not. I would, <laughs> I would for sure park in the wrong you house get all shot the time. Now. My yeah. mom uh, was always living in uh, those types of places, like uh, on cul-de-sacs, yeah. in new housing developments where the, all they all had the red tile roof. Yeah, exactly. Uh, everything had to be a shade of beige. Yes, yes. Uh, in at least one place that she lived, you know, you couldn't park a pickup truck on the <laughs> right. on the street if there was any evidence of like ladders or anything oh in, in them. Wow. Um, yeah, so I have an aesthetic kind yeah. of clenching uh, that happens. Like the- Irvine is a beautiful city. I mean, it really is. And it's well run and there's a lot. I mean, it's a really great city, but it looks, everything looks exactly the same. Yeah, it's. So, uh, I don't know. I, I'd take to, long to each their own. That. Like I, I, I mean, I live in this hellhole, and we can talk a lot about this hellhole, <laughs> which I have a, a love hate relationship with. Kind of hating uh, right now, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. I'm. I'm we're, know, yeah, we're, going, we're going. We're going through a moment. Yeah, I've just seen. The problem is, I've seen too many like penises in the last few weeks, like in the wild in New York. It's like not like willingly. Not willingly. Like, not like no. In, uh-huh. No. Strange. What's the penis count been in the willingness? <laughs> Talk, talk about that offline. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Our moms listen to the show. It's yeah. <laughs> fine. We're adults too. But I was just having a conversation at lunch with, with some coworkers, and, you know, they were, I don't want to say brushing it off, but they were like, oh, yeah, it's part of New York, and the, the subway smells like urine. I'm like, well, I don't think it should smell like urine. I think it should not smell like but urine. You know what's interesting? Because I'm here just for a few days, mm-hmm. and I am staying like it in Times Square. So I've been walking up and down all over. I walked mm-hmm. through Central Park the first day. The city is just so alive. I mean, I know there's a lot of shit here, but I've seen more people in the last three days than I will mm-hmm. see in an entire year yeah. where yeah, I live. Yeah. And as a person who gets a lot of energy from other people, it's just, I feel more alive here than I feel anywhere else. Yeah. You just can't compare. I mean, living in, I love living in Long Beach, but I get in my car, I drive to Vons, I do my shopping, get in my, you know. I've already died two spiritual deaths right. in that exactly. sentence. <laughs> no, it's, Partly because I recognize it. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's, it's just, I mean, I live here instead of living with my family yeah. thousands of miles away. There's just no city I like love New York. It. I, I, I mean, listen, what, what did we do last night? I don't know how much we can talk about yeah, all the much. crimes that we committed last <laughs> night. <laughs> but we met up with 25 of yeah. your listeners at a bar, right. and it was mm-hmm. awesome. And everyone had these crazy different stories. Uh, yeah. Got a lot of uh, helpful intel for me, so that was good. <laughs> um, and then we went around corner, around the corner and saw our friends play in, the, in one of the on best— On a Monday night. On a Monday night in one of the best bands, uh, bar I bands. I, I still think it's the best bar band that I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. And I used to play in bar bands and and, uh, and appreciate the uh, the genre. And along on the way of just going there, I ran into Andrew Schultz. Yeah, we saw now, Andrew Schultz. Who's now a famous— <laughs> comedian and he's got a terrible mustache and, and John Hamm came in is that his name John Hamm oh really he came into the olive tree oh, after really? you guys left yeah is that wow. his name wait the guy from Mad Men yeah oh wow yeah, he walked in who which one of the group uh, went up and uh, no one to him? he like made a beeline past everyone and he was kind of like covered up but yeah, okay. a couple of people right away were yeah. like it was John Hamm so yeah, I mean it's no the New York city. is New York is incredible. I mean I wouldn't do live you, anywhere do you else. Remem- wait do you remember Matt we went out for drinks once in Long Beach 
Do you even remember? It was some weird divey. We went with our friend Leslie. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We, no, that's it was the, such a weird. It's got. Dive. It's called like the 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 dead mariner or something <laughs> <Yeah>. like that. <laughs> I'm like comparing that to where we were last night. Incredible dive bar with really yeah. good uh, karaoke. Um, I love that place. I know, but come on, can you compare it to where we were where we were last night? No. no. Yeah. Exactly. I bet. I mean, I'm sorry to keep like ringing this alarm. No, so I, I get it because I know. I mean, considering the fact that I pay like. 80% in taxes or something, and I just paid my taxes, so I'm even more upset. Um, Which includes, for those of you out there, New York City income taxes. How many cities have income taxes? I don't know, one? Oh, really? Is that <laughs> no, not normal? It's not normal to have a city income. You pay state, you pay federal. Yeah. The so you pay, like, extra, you pay another income tax just for— I guess. Wow. I don't know. I, I, I mean, we pay a shit ton for taxes. We pay a shit ton for rent. Everybody right. knows this. And it's kind of like the—you're like, okay, what? I could pay half this in rent and live in, you know, Jersey, but I don't want to do that because I want to live in the heart of Manhattan where I can go, you know, out with my friends on Monday night and, and listen to music and just have yeah. everything at my fingertips. Um, but I, you know, call me a Karen, but just the <laughs> lack of, of services is frustrating. And by services, I mean elimination of like penises in open right. air in the middle of the day. It's, um, it is gotten so much noticeably worse. And part of the frustration of the recent, uh, dialogue over, uh, the guy who was choked out, um, uh, uh, Neely, Joseph Neely, right? Jordan. Uh, Jordan Neely, sorry. Um, uh, by the Marine, which is an awful and heartbreaking um, and frustrating um, uh, event. But there's a lot of people who are responding to it by doing like, you know, come on, it's New York's not that bad. The subway's not that bad. It's part of the the badge of New York. It's all you like uh, scaredy cats who don't yeah. like to ride the, ride the subway. It's this sort of idea that you're 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 getting a badge of honor by tolerating what is statistically and and viscerally so much worse than it was three years ago. Right. I mean, there was something like 27 murders yeah. on the I want, subway. I want right? to overlap. I want a Venn diagram of how many men say that subway isn't that bad and also own like pussy hats and are like, <laughs> support women. Because for me as a woman, it's kind of shitty. Right. Um, and it's also shitty, and this is very pursuant to developments in New York recently. It's just shitty for families. It's shitty for mm, people with kids. My yeah. eight-year-old rides the subway. My 14-year-old uh, last year rode the subway every day um, and might again uh, in the fall when she comes back and goes to school and may, might change uh, school in, in Manhattan. That's um, – Horrifying mm-hmm. to, to yeah. think. I mean, yeah. I it's it's okay for them to do it, but it's just horrifying to know, and it's not even like to to worry or suspect to know that they are going to see awful things yeah. as part of that process, um, and that the political culture is such um, that people are not oriented towards uh, around like fixing the terrible right. things. Yeah. It's of arguing the language about the way that we talk about the terrible things. Yeah. More. And that's and, really frustrating. And, and a lack of, and, and I was, I just came off a conversation about this with a few people who are, are very bright and, and fairly knowledgeable, but it, it occurred to me how little they know and, and not because they're not bright and knowledgeable, just because, you know, this is very like intricate and you really need to dig deep into like policies and what's criminalized and what's not criminalized and what services are offered. And, and just how many people I realize think that the problem is lack of, you know, shelters or lack of yeah. mental health outreach. All these things that happen, they're they're imperfect. Uh, but they're happening. They're probably a reason why a lot of people aren't on the streets. But then the people who are on the streets are people who I guess these services have not worked for and there needs to be another yeah. solution. Well, I think one of the biggest problems is the protesters don't understand or people like your friends who you were talking to mm-hmm. that the less we take care of these problems on – 
the subway or just in general public nuisance issues, the more radicalized people get. They become vigilantes on their own. Nobody wants to live in a place where you're scared to walk around. Or just so we'll have vote more, for, you know, yeah, right-wing vote candidates. For more right-wing candidates. Yeah. They'll get guns. People will start carrying guns around. I mean, there's people are going to protect themselves. So if, it, if the city's not going to do it, people are going to do it themselves. And one of the ways that they're absolutely doing it and in very measurable ways is they're leaving. People with kids right. leave. They move to Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some part of us are, has a lingering guilt of like we didn't ha- do better. I mean, we, both of our kids are now out of the public school system mm-hmm. after the pandemic. And I come – myself and my wife are both, uh, you know, staunch believers or were uh, that our kids should go through public schools. We're both products of public schools um, and like that universalistic kind of uh, mm-hmm. approach to things. We bailed. We we lost faith in it. Right. Uh, the, what's left uh, is, is wreckage, just, uh, particularly in my district in Brooklyn. They've really ruined a lot of the schools. And so when the places where kids are supposed to go are noticeably worse, you're going to leave. Exactly. You're going to get out. And yeah. places where people evacuate um, urban centers because of, of it's bad for kids, those places get a lot worse right. afterwards, right? You mm-hmm. need some of that. And it's one reason why I'll always have some defense in my heart for the suburbia that I fled um, <laughs> is that that place was or- oriented and organized around kids. There's much fewer of them now. Yeah. Um, and they play much less outdoor sports, which baffles me every time yeah. I go home. But um, but like you need to have that youth and vitality. And if you're scaring everybody off because they're, they're just scared to ride the subway or because you've ruined the schools or yeah. the schools are more dangerous in many places um, and the political culture – um, doesn't want to address that at all. Yeah. They want to mm-hmm. uh, point the finger and laugh at you. Then uh, that's that's a problem. I'm I'm afraid it's happening to too many cities in America right now. And yeah, it me out. I, I hope New Yorkers are are you know too too wise to put up with it like uh, like some other cities. I think I think the fact that people elected Eric Adams who. I have a lot of opinions about him, but most people who elected Eric Adams were like, I'm going to vote for the guy who's like a little more law and order, right? They didn't like go through his whole like, you know. Yeah, his bio. The, the, Yeah. So I think that's a sign, I guess, that people do have their, you know, their heads are in that space of like, how do we. Well, it's very easy to say that you should be nice to everyone until you're mugged yourself. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just that's the way it is. My mother grew up here in this city in the 70s and she was beaten up four times. What? Yes. Yeah. Literally. I mean, she was beaten with chains once. A group of girls, what? yeah, attacked her with chains. I mean, things were happening here in the 70s that made it unlivable. And was, the, it, was it the, like, was she robbed? Hasidic, yeah, she was robbed a bunch of times. It wasn't they like pulled necklaces crime. off of her. I, I mean, can I say something terrible? What? First of all, this is the longest we've gone without talking about the Holocaust. Let's start with that. I'm getting there. <laughs> I was about to get there. <laughs> um... I was on my way. But I was going to say, if, if, she, if, if it was like a hate crime... People, it was the 70s. There was no such there thing There was no hate, hate crime. <laughs> people got robbed. There was no anti-Semitism. Exactly. <laughs> there were just crimes. No, but even now today, people like, let's say there's like a somebody, like a, a crazy ass homeless person yells an Asian slur because he thinks he is like in the 70s right now yeah. or, or, or he's in back in Vietnam or whatever. You know, the headlines and everybody's like, oh my God, Asian hate, Asian hate. Everybody goes wild. But the next, and, and you know, the police and we then, do that you know, too. the NYPD will go and they'll tweet like, we arrested this man for a hate crime. It was like, yay, he's going to be back there the next day. It's right. not like they put him in hate crime jail, you know? So I unfortunately a, that stuff gets more attention, but it's not necessarily does anything. One of my students worked for the city of Long Beach um, in the homeless division. I don't know oh, if that's the really? actual name of it, but there was a division that is supposed to deal with homelessness. Renamed it houseless. Houseless. Unhoused, yeah. Unhoused. And she was telling me that the research shows that it takes 17 
outreaches to a mm-hmm. homeless person until they, on average, until they agree to services. Yeah. So the city has to reach out on average 17 times God. before the homeless person will, like, yeah. you know, pursue whatever I've, I've, help they're I've giving them. I've seen it. I've, 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 but, like, that is not sustainable. I mean, there are 50,000 homeless people and in I don't, L.A. now. You know, like, and that's just not—I mean, you can't function in a city like that. If you're, if you're using, which a lot of people on the street are, it's very hard to stop using drugs. Right. Yeah. Just like it's very hard to, to diet or it's very hard to like stop, like yeah. quit smoking. So it's not just about like, oh, if only there was a, a nice 22 year old with a you know master's <laughs> degree in public health who would come out and be like, hey, let me help you stop using drugs. Right. And the guy's like, thank God I've been sitting here, you know, <laughs> injecting myself with heroin forever and waiting for you. Like it doesn't work like that. But I think too many people think like it's, it's just very like simple solutions in their mind. It's like, you know, a mismatch of services and people. But I think ultimately the that um, people haven't been or, or maybe they're beginning to maybe this process this uh, awful incidents in the subway um, kickstarts some of this conversation because the reporting has shown I mean yeah. I don't think there was seventeen different inter- interactions might have been fifty with him I mean certainly yeah. four different yeah. times he punched people yeah. he was on a top fifty list uh, according to people who have like w- watch out for this guy Great in the guy. subway yeah. um, but uh, but you know uh, people. He, he had judges, very empathetic judges, say, like, look, if you get off drugs, we can get you out of jail, and that's a better thing for everybody, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he agreed to those conditions. He just required monitoring, but then he broke the monitoring, and so he was sort of oh uh, kind of – he was – actually, there was a warrant out for his arrest at the yeah. time that he was killed. Um, and so, like, the system breaks down, and where it breaks down is in that last little moment, right? It's the it's, – everyone's seen the chart, the one flew over the cuckoo's nest yeah. chart, basically, that starting around ni- the mid-1970s when that movie came out, out. Great, wonderful movie with uh, big ties to Nancy Rommel. And um, mm. uh, we did this big deinstitutionalization in this country. Yeah. A lot of a lot of which came for a very good reason, which is that we over-institutionalized before, arguably, and we and uh, the being sane in in insane places study that came out. Do you remember that? I think that was around the same time. This um, this uh, psychology professor took a bunch of grad students, I think, in, in California, and they committed themselves to mental institutions, uh-huh. and then they all came out and wrote about it, and everybody was horrified, and it was kind of like that with the Geraldo Rivera moment of the um, that place in Staten Island. Yeah. Like, there were all these... Yeah. It was almost like a defund movement. There were all these yeah. stories coming out about how horrific these mental institutions are, but, you know, n- nobody ever thinks, like, well, how do we make them less horrific? Like, the, the solution is always, like, flip the table and, like, you know, not play anymore. Um, I don't know about the wisdom of that decision in that moment, um, but I think that we can say without fear of controversy that, um, you know, since then the prisons filled up with a lot of mentally ill people. And right. since then yeah. a lot of mentally ill people um, went into the streets and uh, a lot of the homelessness that we saw. One of the first things I wrote as a college journalist in 1986 um, was uh, part of a three-part series on homelessness, which had really spiked up in California and in Santa Barbara where I was. And and it was that the people pointed to this sort of great deinstitutionalization that happened, and we still don't have a great answer for that. Yeah. And, and it's probably partly yeah. because it's hard it's to hard. have to have it's a great hard. answer. Eric Adams suggested in the subway, like, look, if someone is obviously out of their mind and being yeah. threatening, we should be able to involuntarily detain them. This was a huge controversy. Just what happened the other and this, day. Yeah. And just what happened the other day. Um, and uh, I mean, there's the case um, in Prospect Park. Of a uh, of crazy homeless dude who beat a dog to death yeah, with a stick, yeah. and like no one could figure out what right. to do about this because right. they're also worried about 
over incarceration and using too much police and all of this. Um, we have to be able to figure that out. I think I think there is some sweet spot out there mm-hmm. to the extent of which that word could be used um, to yeah. describe this horrible stuff um, of just public derangement or public intoxication. Yeah, yeah. Um, we live in we live in a society. We live in public. Yeah. Um, if you're in public in a city, in my mind, and a lot of libertarians think I'm a monster for this, uh, means you can't have a tent on the sidewalk right. mm-hmm. and you can't be out of your mind on drugs or or just intoxicated yeah. in a threatening to other people's um, uh, way of life or, or just like a sense of personal safety kind of way. There has to be in that moment an ability to say, okay, we're going to take you out of the yeah. situation. We'll put you in the the weird tank yeah. for, for even an hour we'll just or remove you from society. We, we have you to be don't, removed. You can't play anymore. You can't do that thing here. Um, uh, New York doesn't have that. It has that more than uh, many other cities because we don't allow for like public camping. Yeah, public camping is a huge thing LA that doesn't I think do that. Sa- LA doesn't city. do that. I know, California, there are, that's a, Yeah, everywhere. that's why you don't, get, you don't get really encampments here. The, the, you, get, you get pockets, but I think people are very like, and you know, this is like my public policy nerd hat, um, but like people are very uncomfortable with like tr- with trade offs, right? They're like, we want a perfect solution where nobody gets hurt and everybody's happy. I'm like, no, no, no. You have to like yeah. account for some uncomfortableness. Like if you are, uh, you know, deciding to like criminalize thir- certain things, then you know you might sweep up more people who shouldn't be on the street for public urination. But you're also going to like you know, potentially make things like public intoxication criminalized and then people who are maybe some just like harmless people will get caught up. But you have to be comfortable with public policy with like some sort of trade-offs, right? And people are like, nope, we just want perfect solutions. And that's how you get nothing. The other other piece of it is that families really don't have any way to get help for their loved ones. And I know this firsthand. We have a family member um, who was struggling Actually, not in this country, but in a different, but another Anglo-Saxon country. Was it Israel? Um, no. Was it uh, you? I'm not going to say. Stop it. My relatives listen. Did this happen in the Holocaust? Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> but I mean, the family just trying had to light no it up a little bit with some Holocaust talk. <laughs> the family had no way to get help for this person because you can't have someone committed, and when they would, the person would leave. Yeah. Right. And the police had no way to help, and this person would get arrested all the time. Yeah. And the police would bring this person home, and like the family had nothing. They tried everything, and we really need. I mean, I've read kind of ideas around this where it's like there are little like you know, court systems where there's like a judge and, you know, a social worker and a family member and maybe one other like kind of, you know, neutral person who can make decisions about taking someone off the streets yeah. and putting them in, you know, involuntary um, hold. There because are stories of we people have to begging have for that. Yeah, we have to be able to do it. I mean, unfortunately, it's a reality that a lot of families deal with. I can't what imagine you being yeah. have, having a family member who's like schizophrenic, yeah, violent. It's it's like awful. what do you do? We it's expect a, we expect a city to solve it. We can't even solve it in right. our communities. Right. It's yeah. a multi layer problem. It's an, it's <sighs> government. It's family. I mean, it's on and on. Look, you're making let's, me all sad. I know you. Yeah. Sad. <laughs> okay, let's, I'm just sad because I'm on. thinking about my 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 taxes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really care about these people. I care about the, how much money I'm paying. Oh, wait, I wanted to talk about the LA Times because you were at the LA Times for a while too. Yeah. How how many years were you there? Just two. Um, I in 2006, 2007. They hired oh, me really? as Aww. assistant editor. I was in LA in 2007. Really? Maybe we overlapped. That would have been cool. Yeah. I even know knew someone else named Yael back then. Really? Yeah. It wasn't me. 
Maybe. Oh. That would explain everything. <laughs> <laughs> no, but maybe we met. We went to a Friends of Abe uh, party at Barney's Beanery once. I didn't. I you didn't? I didn't go to such things. No. Okay. <laughs> I went to something better. It was at Yamashiro. Um, oh, that, my God. Is that the Japanese restaurant at the oh yeah. on top of the hill we did, off of Hollywood Boulevard? Or yeah, yeah. <gasps> Sunset? Uh-huh. Oh, my God. That's wow. it's so we nice up there. a monthly cabal there for a really You're long kidding. time. Wow. Yeah. Friends of Abe so was nice. like, I guess people don't know, which I really want somebody to open in New York. Um, was just like a bunch of people in the entertainment industry who were, there wasn't, the word woke didn't exist back then, but it was like non-woke people, right? I mean, they were, a lot of them were, like Abraham Lincoln? Yeah. A lot of them were Republicans, but it was before, I I don't know, well, tell me if you think this is, this is a right analysis, because I had just come to the country. But it was, I guess people, Republicans weren't as evil back then in the public mind. They are more like, ha ha, stupid, you like George Bush. All right. You know, there was a sense that the, a critique that George Bush was like a fascist. Yeah, was, yeah, but so. they were. I feel like they were mocked more than like it wasn't like now. If you tell somebody you voted for Trump, and they'll like call the police. Yeah. Do you know what Friends of Bill is? No. <laughs> oh, I w- we have like conference in the Jewish world. By the way, if you work as like me, I'm a Jewish professional in the Jewish world. You're going to a million conferences a year, so I get the schedule, and every morning in the, on, in these conferences is like 7 a.m. Friends of Bill, and I'm like, what the fuck is this? What is it? It's AA. Oh, oh sure, yeah, okay, yeah. Isn't I it didn't know something that. Else? Is it not called? I think it's called. Yeah, Bill. Friends of Bill, Bill. what's his face? Was the founder of AA? Yeah, who's um, Dorothy? Who's friends of Dorothy? I have no idea. It's also something. But I just, I had no. I'm like, I kept asking. I'm like, what is this? What is friends? Should I be going to this? It's like a fight should. club. You I, should go. Bill, yeah. I'm like, is it Bill cookies. Gates? Like, who are we friends with? I, I wonder I, if I can go to AA without being an alcoholic. You can. I feel like the meetings are. I'd meet a lot of cool people. Really, have cookies. Yeah. I mean, there was a you know a well known, very uh, uh, helpful to your career AA meeting in Hollywood, the YMCA. Really? Yeah. Like, I'm uh, thinking the of rock Fight stars Club. Would go. Uh, <laughs> it's pretty good. Uh, I my problem with friends of eight people back then, uh, and I knew a lot of them, and Andrew Breitbart was around. Yeah, yeah. Those things um, was that they just complained too much. It's like, oh, I can't work in Hollywood because I'm conservative. I'm like, yeah, like, yeah, you're is, not is really good. <laughs> Or is that your Scott Bale? <laughs> I think it's because you're Scott. Hey, Bale. hey, hey! We, do we draw the lines in Scott Bale here on. on this podcast. Well, I just recently saw Bugsy Malone, and he can he can still get I, it. I learned that everything kid. I know from sitcoms. Charles in Charge. I, yeah, I love that. Everything show. I know, and we would also get like the bad sitcoms in Israel that wouldn't make. We would get Canadian sitcoms. Oh my yeah. god! Yeah, it's like the French would never get like Columbo. <laughs> they would get Starsky and Hutch. Yeah, not yeah. That there's anything wrong with Starsky yeah. and Hutch. <laughs> but then they pronounce it Starsky a Hutch, and that's very funny. I was talking to an Egyptian friend the other day, somebody I know from NYPD, and we were, we we bonded over our love of uh, Knots Landing, oh, which was. Dear god. I, <laughs> I guess. You watched that show? Yeah. That we like, didn't have anything else to watch. That's Apparently hilarious. in Egypt, too. Couldn't afford Dallas, but you got not. No, I, I think we had Dallas, but I think I was a little, I think that was like a little before my time. I don't think we discussed Jerry Springer dying. I was really Aww, sad about that. Really? Oh, my God. He yeah. was great. I mean, I would watch his show every, like, whenever I stayed home. I mean, I, all the memes about Did you think the that all secular people were like that? Yeah. Like, all I, Honestly, I thought that. Yeah. I did. <laughs> and, and, like, I was told that. Yeah. Like, see— that's why you have to keep Torah mitzvahs. If you don't, you end up marrying your horse and like wearing an adult diaper and like having four wives without teeth. So like I was scared, but scared, it, but also a little bit titillated. I was a little interested. In that. Like, tell me more about this horse. No, like, you know, no, but I did enjoy watching like the fireworks on stage, and he was just always like so calm and like. 
acted as if it was serious, you know? He'd be, like, asking, like, deep questions about literally the dumbest pieces of shit on the planet. But I really liked him. Those shows still exist. Like, those people still exist. Do you think? And those shows still exist. My grandfather was such a big fan. I mean, he would Jerry Springer? Oh, my God. He loved that show. He would sit in his room. I remember this. I mean, my grandfather, big, long beard, a Hasidic guy, you know? But he was so funny. And he would sit in his room and he would go, Jerry, Jerry, Jerry. And he loved it. It was, like, made for my grandfather. Oh, my God. We used to watch Ricky Lake, which I guess was the female version of of Jerry, Jerry. No one was like Jerry. Wally George kind of came close a little bit in the 80s. Yeah. This before your time probably. But, I do uh, know who it is though. Um, uh, he was an Orange County guy who's was weirdly like the father or something of like Rebecca de Mornay. There was some oh, really? Hollywood connection that made no sense. <laughs> um, it was interesting. But um, he was an Orange County like born again Christian back when it was in the 80s. There was this big kind of fundamentalist uh, evangelical revival in, in Southern California especially. And they were, they were like, Wally, Wally. Yeah. And he would, <laughs> he would talk. I don't think he used the word libtards, but that was basically <laughs> the subtext of it. But he would also have like weirdos come on stage or yeah. people try like punk rock. Rockers come up to try to challenge him, yeah. and he'd like sort of chase him <laughs> off. Jerry Springer was uh, he defended the Nazis, as a matter of fact. Did uh, he? On on, uh, I'll get some of the details a little bit wrong, but I saw this. Um, people were were memorializing him after he died as mayor of Cincinnati. He was Cincinnati. Oh yeah. right, he was a mayor. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, the some stupid Nazis like wanted to march, and oh, he's yeah. like, uh, and people wanted him to stop it, and he's like, no, um, we're not going to stop it because this is America, and First Amendment is the most important thing. Wow. Really ringing thing of free speech, yeah. and then it's like, and. These Nazis suck. <laughs> God, they suck. Uh, it was just like a really a classic Jerry Springer oh, moment. I love so. that. I, have you ever watched Family Feud? Yeah. Of course. So I feel like I want to write like a thesis a, a, or, or like a piece for Tablet about Family Feud because I feel like it is the cringiest. Oh, no, oh. it is the most unifying <laughs> American product. First of all, it's been on for like 150 years. Are you talking right? about the Richard Dawson era or is that? No, like, this guy. Yeah, what's his name? Steve. Steve stuff. Harvey. Steve Harvey. Yeah. And you have families, and it's always, like, incredibly diverse, and everybody ha- shares the same thing as they're all, like, so excited to be there. And they're all just, like, so in love with the it's process. But they all come from, like, there's, like, a black family from Chicago and, like, a Mormon family from <laughs> Iowa. And they're all standing there, and they're trying to guess what Americans think about things. Yeah. And I it's feel like it's good. just the most wonderful—and it's always on. Yeah, it's and there's like on. this whole America out there that is not like on Twitter and not on you know <laughs> on like the comment board of the New York Times, and like I want to go over there and be with those people sometimes because I feel like they're what, having more fun. Do you know what show I'm so bad at? Like I will never go on that show. The Price is Right. I do not know how much things cost. Like I get it so wrong. You're like, like the mother from does, Arrested Development. No, like how much does this mop cost? I'm like twenty five dollars. Meanwhile, it was four dollars and ninety one cents. I'm such a bad Jew. I, I am can, so with you on this. Like whenever so they bad. get mad at a politician, like George H W Bush didn't know what a quart of milk was. I'm like, what's a quart? First of I all, and then. Like, I don't know. Totally. Part, part of, of becoming unpoor, uh, which is a really great thing. I recommend everyone do it, um, <laughs> is that you stop paying attention to prices. I know. It's such a great freedom. Wait, does that mean? Sorry, I don't know Bar- what that I'm, says about me. It either says that I'm still poor no, or you're that just I have a problem. You're cheap. I'm not cheap because you I are. spend. No, but I you're- buy things like I'll, I yeah. love like having fun and like buying for myself and buying for friends. But it drives me crazy to know. Like, let's say I'm buying a product on Amazon. Like, I'm not going to go buy it for CVS, this, like, dishwasher cleaner for, like, 
you know, $7 when I can buy it on Amazon for three ninety nine. Oh my God, like, no, that would I drive can't. me crazy. No. That, that amount of even knowing that, yeah. you've just shortened your life <laughs> by like a year, I think. Like, it's in I'm my like, sorry. You need to be able to, to spend that productive, yeah. smart energy creating things, building things, doing things. Writing or my, you have to marry someone like Baruch. Writing my book about, uh, what do you call it, Family Feud. <laughs> yeah. Or you marry someone like Baruch who yeah. does pay attention to the prices. It's good yeah. to have and little— And he cares. But, like, I, I mean, he's going to laugh when he hears this. I, I and he cannot, does listen. Yeah. But, like, I am so bad about prices. I've, I'm always like, wait, that's that's so little. I should pay you more, I feel like. That doesn't make sense. How do you make any money if it's so little? I uh, I drew the, uh, the uh, lifelong enmity of my family— uh, because I went to like Whole Foods or something and we were supposed to cook salmon that night and oh. I bought $71 worth of salmon. <laughs> how do you even buy – how much salmon is that? I do just, that like, every week. It was weirdly overpriced but then yeah. I also didn't pay attention and also put a big slab there and yeah. I didn't tell them to stop it because I don't like to hassle anybody. It's just like a cascade of welchness. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that is where I would spend un- yeah. unnecessarily when I feel like I'm inconveniencing somebody. Yeah. So if I ask, let's say I ask a guy for a salmon and he comes back and he comes back with a $70 salmon, I would just take it and like go like, you know, go lower my it. head and be like, thank you. Because I don't want to hurt his feelings. Have you ever spent $1,000 on a grocery order? No. no. Yeah, I have. Many but you have times. boys. You have four boys. Well, they it's usually a for a holiday. But like when you go to a kosher store in L.A., Okay, kosher so stores kosher food are in New York expensive. is cheaper. In L.A. it's more expensive. And you go like pre-Passover. I mean, I easily spent a few thousand dollars on a grocery shop. Holy cow. I know. It's insane. You could buy a piece of meat for like $150. That and it's kosher not like food is fancy. very expensive, though. It is. Because you have to pay for like uh, and, bribing the rabbis for and, a kosher certificate. I know. Well, also, I'm, I love capitalism and I'm a huge capitalist. But <laughs> <laughs> the one time that I'm like, this is bullshit, is when the stores just jack up all the prices before Passover. It's so unfair. Like, I don't— I understand that there are families that can do it, but there are so many families in our community that cannot afford it. Yeah. And there's no choice, right? Like, you can't go to Walmart and buy a similar product because you're if you keep kosher, you can only buy milk and meat and cheese and all that. Amazon. In the kosher Amazon store. No, even on everything. Amazon. Not where you cannot buy kosher meat on Amazon. So it's really taking advantage of like your community, the owners of the stores. I'm just hearing a market opportunity here. I, I know. Like, it's like, true. You're actually right. Like a cheap. Cheaper? Cheaper, better. I've got some Palestinian friends in uh, Long Beach. <laughs> oh suggest that they, they you should get a few open a coaster. Store. You should get a few cows and start slaughtering cows in your backyard and selling. Oh my meat. God, seriously. Um, my my. Well, I've talked about my grandfather in the slaughterhouse. I'm not going to go into that. But um, <laughs> Matt, I want. I I'll, you talk about living in Prague a lot on yeah. the. But but you it's joke just, that it's a lot, but it's not. And I want to know more. You like, uh, you asked me about the LA Times. I, uh, oh, we got. I forgot about that. Yeah. What okay, did you want LA to know about Times. The LA Times. So okay. So this is what my question was. So the LA Times mm-hmm. is supposedly nonpartisan. Mm-hmm. Right, officially, but reason like takes a sta- like has a political view, right? Right. So I'm curious, like working one versus the other, is there a difference? How should sure. like how do? But I feel like the LA Times does have a view, but they it don't acknowledge more, it. It has much more of a view now um, than it did before. The LA Times, I worked the opinion p- pages, right? right? So. Um, uh, that it was uh, then separate from the news division. It was oh. the publisher was in charge of it instead of the editor in chief, 
And it's very funny because we would always get um, pushback from the newsroom, the allegedly impartial people, because they get mad if we said something nice about Arnold Schwarzenegger or mm. something like that. Um, so that happened more than <laughs> once when I was there. Um, the uh, it, it's, an, it's an interesting experiment when tried to be done with intellectual honesty, as it was during most of my tenure there. Um, I came in the wake of Michael Kinsley, who'd come over kind of notoriously to run that department, but he was splitting time between there and Washington, and um, he ended up getting bounced. But his deputies, who he'd recruited, um, who were kind of interesting guys who wanted to remake uh, the way that we do opinion sections, a part of it, and I, I went through these exercises with them, is, okay, look, let's Let's say what our values are here at this right. section well, for you know the editorials. Let's be aware of our own starry decisis. If we said that we you know opposed this tax increase or this this initiative or whatever, let's if we're changing our mind, let's point to why, like how we've changed our mind, and like try to think about it more. Um, and also with the idea that it's tethered to certain idiosyncratic values that the paper holds. It's a Western paper. It's mm. uh, going to be environmentalist. It's going to be sort of pro-immigration. It's part of its character. Like it, we chose a few things like that to try to build a consciousness instead of just having a place where people from the newsroom could go, go okay, I don't have to pretend to be objective anymore. Mm. So I'm just going to say that all the Republicans are bad all the time. Right. Uh, and so you'd get together with this group of people in the editorial board and you'd hash it out. Um, and they came from a lot of different positions than you. And I was like the weird libertarian over there in the corner. <laughs> but weird libertarians oftentimes can speak everyone's language. So we can sort of be a conduit. And I also was in a position of management kind of uh, in there as well. The Hilariously, the last few months that I was there, um, for the most part, uh, the guys who had hired uh, brought me in. They fled under a really stupid and impossible to get into sex scandal. Um, oh my God. And so there was a period of time, and I came in as an outsider. Like I, my, I started writing uh, for the LA Times because they brought me to write a thing called Outside the Tent, which oh. was like it sounds. So like they want someone from outside to criticize the LA Times. Mm. So I wrote a half a dozen pieces, just like disparaging the sports columnist, <laughs> uh, uh, both Bill Dwyer, not Bill Dwyer, uh, Bill Plaschke oh, yeah, and TJ. Yeah. Simers, uh, their education reporters, they all hated me on the outside <laughs> of the bed. And then I waltz in like, hi. Um, <laughs> but then after a while, everyone above me leaves. And so there was a period of time in 2007 for like two and a half months. Um, I edited every editorial and oh I approved and edited every editorial and wrote quite a few in the LA Times. I was the institutional voice. And that is hilarious that is so for anyone who knows me or who knows <laughs> LA um, from the outside. It was fun. It was interesting. We tried to, I tried to teach uh, or like introduce like at least late 20th century ideas to a 21st <laughs> century news behemoth. And uh, it was really hard. Like yeah. it's it's so hard to teach old legacy institutions that used to be colossal. I mean, the LA Times in the 80s when I was a teenager was the largest newspaper in the country, had the largest newsroom in the country. It was amazing. Like they had so many good writers and, and uh, reporters. It was called the Velvet Coffin famously because you – get to work there and you would never see your byline because you're buried under everything oh. um, but you get paid a lot of money um, <laughs> so you're happy to do it um, and it went from there to just this long 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 decline and um, and it's really hard to kind of um, in, insert a kind of cheerfulness and an openness and mm -hmm. to break down the walls between the, the reader which is all things I was trying to do I got frustrated then Reason offered me the editor job oh and, that's interesting what would it be like uh, if you work there today um, in some ways it would be 
better. Um, some of the people who I helped bring into the place, like Gustavo Ariano, um, are now like treasured uh, yeah. uh, people. He was definitely an outsider by the when I was like saying, "No, get that guy. Mm-hmm. Trust me." Um, they're much more interested. I mean, he used to be a white paper in a non-white town. Um, and I, uh, you know, I'm not a huge identitarian, but I think also you should have some knowledge and, and yeah. reflection of not everybody should live in the same neighborhood, regardless of, of their, uh, of their makeup. Um, and, uh, I think they reflect the town a little bit more, but I th- also think they're more, um, the news pages are more openly political and kind of slanted, mm. um, to the left and people have short memories. They don't realize the LA times was a kingmaker in Republican politics mm. for most of its. Uh, career. I mean, it helped oh, yeah. create Richard Nixon. It helped uh, sort of ratify Herbert Hoover. It was just, it was this Reagan. thing. Uh, Reagan as well. Um, that only changed uh, beginning in the 60s and it, be- it sort of morphed into what it became. And it was a lot more of a, a hacky paper in that time too. Um, so there was only a, a, a short period of, of like a, the glory times um, there that everyone is always feeling this sort of uh, uh, lamenting for. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, so I worked uh, to answer, kind of answer your question. Like I, I could always wear my own politics on my sleeve yeah. and it was fine. It was expected. It was the opinion <laughs> section. But the place itself didn't have as much of a you can expect us to always uh, come on this side of that issue. Yeah. It was more of a, of a brawling type of intellectual thing, which I found very interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. Do you ever look back at pieces you wrote and like cringe? <laughs> or do you just not? Just mo- mostly from the writing. Um, like just uh, certain ticks that I had then that I would never tolerate now. That's interesting. <clears throat> so I'll see it and it just like – It bothers it's, you. It's nails on chalkboard. Very um, rarely will I uh, – uh, you know, I've changed my mind about some things over the years, um, but uh, very rarely will I go back and feel like ah, that was uh, part of it. It's like when you're being youthful and mean to public figures right. um, who then you become friendly with um, and, <laughs> and realize that your meanness was sort of was funny and shorthand, but it wasn't uh, it wasn't getting you closer to the truth. Like I'm I think I remember calling I, I actually regret this. Um uh uh Tucker Carlson a bow tied yapper um <laughs> twenty years ago, twenty five years sound, ago. I mean I feel like he's been called a lot worse. He has, of okay. course. But like there, there was more to him than that right, at yeah. the time that I wrote that. And also I think he'd stopped wearing the bow tie. So it was like he <laughs> was doubly kind of wrong. But that kind of sort of uh just toss off yeah. um uh uh dismissal of people I don't like to do in my adulthood as much as my youth. But for the most part, because I have been writing um, what I have wanted to write more or less since the age of 18, which is two lifetimes ago, um, uh, I have this, you know, this wonderful feeling of I don't really have regrets for stuff that I've written. Like I I wish it could have been better um, (laughs) always, but I don't feel like, uh, oh, that was wrong or – Oh, I was wrong to express that at that time in my life. I feel I feel pretty um, uh, proud of not writing things that were insincere. Mm, have you great. ever? Is there anything you haven't written that you'd always wanted to? Yeah, lots, lots, of <laughs> lots, lots of things. Yeah, <laughs> is um, it about baseball? Some of it's about baseball. Some of it's not about baseball. Um, uh, I've got I've got four or five kind of. Uh, big ideas that I would like to land to fruition while I still have a brain mm. uh, and still have uh, uh, some kind of working energy. Um, so a lot of the way I've been thinking about my work personally has been oriented towards 
delivering on those things. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we'll see if I, I, I can get them all done. I really hope to um, because, I'm you know, you're conscious when you're a parent um, and when you're getting old of you want to transmit whatever thing that you have um, to – and also just kind of to, to land the fucking plane. Yeah. Um, you know, I, uh, <laughs> let's let's get this thing instead of like talking about it or thinking about it. Yeah, so. Chayla and I talk a lot about the, the frustration we have of wanting to – you know, put down our ideas on paper and, and the only people stopping us are ourselves. It's not like we can't do that, but we can't do that. Do you write every day? Um, I don't know if that no. is, uh, you know, I, I generally write a piece a week for reason. I generally write a piece, uh, just, you know, a, a dumb uh, kind of uh, post uh, every week for the fifth column. Um, and so I'm, constantly tinkering with stuff and I'll throw something on my uh, dumb baseball website. Right. Um, but like, I don't, I don't wake up thinking I've got to get my, you know, you don't do like, I, I write for, right. You don't write no. for an hour every day. No. Um, but if I, if it's a book project time, both of my books that I wrote um, were done in just impossible haste. They were both oh. written in, um, but which I loved. Um, they were both written in, I think four months or less. Wow. Um, and in fact, the first one, the McCain book, the actual writing of it was more or less like two months, two and a half wow. months. Um, so it was just every day, 14 hours a day. Sorry wow. to be technical. Do you <laughs> – I just have a lot of questions about yeah. this. But do you edit as you write or do you just write a stream of consciousness and then go back and fix it up? Mm, I edit as I write and I'm very – because I come from newspapers, I'm very top heavy mm. in the way that – like it's – I got to get the structure right. Sometimes you just be stuck and you got to just sort of vomit some stuff mm. out. Um, but also I'm, you know, I'm, I'm someone who uses a lot of, of like hyperlinks and mm -hmm. in, uh, in whenever I can and, and like the concept of, I'm always sort of doing footnotes. Um, mm -hmm. so that requires like researching to fill back in. I, it, it's gotta be kind of right. Um, and I, I only do the stream of consciousness when the structure really isn't working and I gotta get something out. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, but generally speaking, I sculpt the top and I, and I agonize and wrestle over making sure that it's flowing in the right direction and it's in the it's in the um, kind of it, it's appropriate to the subject mm. um, and then uh, you know the the bottom 80 percent it goes a lot faster than the top 20 percent oh that's interesting what's your favorite thing to write of the the things that you do now on a regular basis mm. The response to comments on the fifth column substack. <laughs> I do very little of that. I love I love the weekend updates because I just I feel like when I feel like you're having fun when you write those. Yes, that's not a chore. Um, certainly, and it's not. Um, you know, when you're writing in journalism, you agonize over every single word choice, just in terms of is it true or not? Am mm -hmm. I saying something that's just not? Right. right. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so that takes a lot of time and effort. Um, so part of what you hear on the fifth column is, you know, standards a little bit looser <laughs> when you're just talking with your bros. Yeah. Um, you still try to get it right. But uh, also it's like it's the uh, it's the releasing of the pressure of of having to do that um, uh, in the same type of way. Um, so I don't know. I like I like um I love the feeling, and it only happens sometimes, and it usually has led to books um, in, my, in the future, uh, when I have an insight into a topic and I write it and it, people's feedback – I feel like it's an insight. Like, hey, I, mm -hmm. I, I know more than the average bear on this. Or I'm like my, my take on this is just – it's idiosyncratic and, um, uh, and 
I might be onto something. And then when the reaction to it is like from people who are either knowledgeable or just who hadn't ever thought about it in that same mm. way, um, give me that feedback. Yeah. That is the that is the, for me the the absolute like gold standard. What you just described is exactly why I struggle to write because every time I start something and I think, okay, I'm going to write on this topic. I get caught up. I'm like, there's so many people who know more about this mm-hmm. than me. What am? What do I have to say? Why would anyone care what I have to say about this? And I, I wish I felt like there was something that I knew more or thought differently about than anyone else because that's really you're right. More I mean, that's, about the Jewish community in Long Beach, California, than most people. That's true. Um, <laughs> I hear the people that's who true. That's true. I hear that's the people that's true. who disagree with me in my head. So I, I will start writing, and I hear all the haters. That's like just, just pointing, us. picking things. Yeah. <laughs> We're actually there behind you. Yeah, <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah. No, it's I, I know I'm I'm so like it's, it's hungry anxiety. to write it's more, and I thing. just have to sit and do it. I know I just have to try to. I mean, both of you should listen to those demons and and actually uh, respond to them because one thing is to do that. I was talking to a kid who came out to the Reason Roundtable thing. He's a fifth column listener and. Um, he was thinking about starting, I think, a podcast uh, or a Substack. I forget which. Sorry for you or if you're listening. Um, but uh, and he has a lot of big ideas about this and that. And it's like you know, asking me for advice. And so my advice to him was like, "What do you know that I don't know? Right. Mm. If right. you're just going to write about stuff that I know, and I'm older than you, and I've been <laughs> right. doing this for longer, I'm not going to be interested in it. Yeah. Um, unless you like really know a part of it so much better than me. And then it turns out that he really knows how to like read. Um, uh, scientific studies, the way that they're written and then the way they're misrepresented in the media. I'm yeah. like, oh, that's, interesting. that's a helpful thing that you can yeah, do. So there are things that you know um, yes. and the perspectives that you have that are pretty unique to you and of interest to a broader o- audience, evidently, mm-hmm. right? I mean— Should I write about Colin from the olive tree? <laughs> Yes. Yes, you should. You should write him a That'll be my first my poem. first post. I should write him a poem. <laughs> but I, I think it's not just what you know, it's also how like what you're how you communicate. And for you and I think for me too, in a way, like what like our language is humor, right? So I can talk about like policing, but I can also be funny. So where can I like, you know, marry those two things? Mm. And for you it's like you know, yeah, there are plenty of people writing about orthodox stuff, but there aren't a lot of people who like make fun of themselves mm. talking about orthodox stuff. Yeah. I mean, part of of your skill is communicating orthodox life to the rest of us because most right. of us are not. And um, and you kind of have a foot in our world and a foot in that world, uh, much to the befuddlement of your own family. <laughs> and friends. <laughs> and friends. And that's kind of cool and interesting, yeah. right? Although um, we do, we do, I am learning that there are a lot of Orthodox people who listen to the fifth column and are kind of like in libertarian yeah. spaces. It is, uh, I mean, w- this happened early on. This, even pre-pandemic, I yeah. think uh, Michael would, would walk across the Williamsburg Bridge and just get stopped by people wearing funny clothes all the time. And, and did they ask him if he can turn a light bulb off? Was that, <laughs> that it? That did happen once, but uh, but uh, yeah. And I mean, they're already they recognize you from a podcast, which is completely I know. bizarre. I know. But yeah. then also they're orthodox and like okay, it's just a don't ask. I remember Michael talking once on the podcast. This was before I knew you guys, or like I had never written or anything. And he mentioned something about having two sinks in his apartment. And he's like, I thought it was just because, you know, they were fancy. And he's like, then I realized it's because they have, or two dishwashers, whatever, one for milk, one for meat. And I was just like, I felt when he was talking about that, 
and you were talking about Brooklyn. I'm like, I just, I felt like this was a place for me. I, I know that's yeah. weird, but like, yeah, I felt. And seen. then he was like, and I hate those people. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't care about that part. No, but like, how often do I ever hear anything, any mention of yeah. my community anywhere? And I'm the one who always says representation doesn't matter because right. I think that's kind of a BS thing. The whole yeah. like, if you see someone that looks like you, all of a sudden, I just, I don't believe in that. I spent my whole life never seeing a four foot eleven person <laughs> represented in anything, and I've been fine. A okay? civic woman. Listen, yeah, like with exactly. a Sam Harris book under her. Exactly. Yeah. Um, like, um, so, you know, I, so I just don't believe in that, but it was just nice hearing like a place where they understood who I was. And that was part of why I fell in love with the fifth column and why I wrote my first email. And I was in my kitchen cooking for Shabbos when you read my email and I was freaking out. I was, I mean, I didn't know anyone. I, I didn't remember know you. that and I didn't know you You didn't then. know me then. I was freaking out. I stopped. I went back. I recorded it. I played it to my family. I was like, they read my email. It was about anti-Semitism. I don't remember, of course. <laughs> the obviously. Holocaust. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. But um, it was just, listen, I, I, I know this is like, I don't mean to just kiss your ass here, but like it has changed my life. I mean, I, I, I feel stupid saying it, but like, I have I have so many friends from the fifth column community now. Yeah, people yeah. who I deeply care about, who are like lifelong friends. Forget your L. I mean, yeah, fine. We all. I mean, without saying everybody forgets exactly. your L. <laughs> but like, I mean, I went to a wedding in December of two people who met through the fifth column who are now married. I mean, it's it's incredible. Yeah, I mean, Matt, it's, like, it's, t- tell us about that because we we you know we're we're gonna get there soon. I think it's a matter of months till <laughs> till we reach fifth column level fame. Oh sure. But like, how, so. That has to be a little bit weird. Is it sure. a little bit weird? Sure, but you can experience it out of out of body. So you just right. No, but but like, fun. are you guys like how how like tell me the the how do you measure like the like being very flattered by this community that you guys have built and also being a little weirded out? Um, <laughs> the way that I think about it is that um, it's like uh, a couple of different ways. So first, internal to us. Um, and this w- became true with the fifth column almost immediately. It's, it's very similar to what a band is. Mm-hmm. A band creates its own band logic, its mm-hmm. own band rituals. And um, y- you, you start to get a sense, no, that's not right for the band, mm-hmm. even though you might like to do it. And maybe the other two guys like to do it too. Mm-hmm. But like it has, it has created its own logic mm-hmm. and its own kind of It's like momentum. a separate entity. It, which is beautiful. Like yeah. you've, mm-hmm. you've created uh, – back in the 70s, we had this thing. I forget what it was called, like a gyro wheel or something. It was sort of like – it was a plastic ball, but the, uh, there was an exposed part with the wheel underneath. And you could – it's like vroom, vroom, vroom. And then if you did enough, it would sort of like create its own kind of uh, rotor engine and you could like uh, – Use it and to strengthen your wrist. I'm making wrist strengthening noises here. I forget okay. what it's called. It was a very like super like 1979 uh, toy. Um, but like it's that when it creates its own kind of momentum mm-hmm. and engine um, that you're like, okay, I've done something great here and in, in it's – I've been part of a creation of a thing that now lives on its own mm-hmm. and has its own thing, and that to me is wonderful. I've, I've I've been in the in the game of of trying to create media since I was 18 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, started a newspaper in Prague. You might have heard of yeah. that. Um, you know, tried to st- tried to start newspapers in LA with Richard Reardon, the of late uh, mayor of the city, uh, which I'm going to uh, talk about on a forthcoming podcast. Um, 
uh, you know, websites, radio stations, you name it. Right. Like mm-hmm. I've always tried to start things, podcasts now. Um, and most things fail because most things always fail. But when they succeed, um, it's not just like, like uh, oh, my vision triumphed. It's like, no, um, I've created something in the world and now it's running around on its own. Yeah. Look at yeah. it. That's right. funny. And, and the same is true with audience. So that thing that you're describing, like – uh, yeah, the fifth column changed your life. Actually, the fifth column community changed your life, right? It's the people yeah. there who have created their own culture. And I'm happy and I love being part of that culture. I'm not all that necessary to it. Like I I go as a as almost a, a fan or a participant mm-hmm. in it. I mean, it belongs to Jay, who's sitting, you know, 20 feet from <laughs> us right now, as much as it belongs to, to me or anybody else. And so, yeah, it's weird on yeah. paper. I mean, we've seen in this studio, which we've built um, in, uh, 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 next to Nancy's apartment, um, we've had, uh, what, at least one uh, marriage proposal in that room? Yes, there. Yeah, um, yeah. And, uh, and maybe another one in that room, I forget. Um, <laughs> so, like, it, yes, on paper, yeah. you got to go, okay, well, that's, right, that's right. pretty weird. <laughs> but also, like, not. Also, there's a way in which that it's totally normal and it is mostly like a product of things – um, uh, surviving enough in the world to create their own um, kind of offshoots. Yeah, so. and I think if you if the the show were to disappear tomorrow, which you know hopefully it won't, but the the, the community or the the conversations will will not stop. Yeah, I mean people have still found each other. But I was listening, I was uh, reading this Pew uh, research about podcasts and how many Americans listen to podcasts, and there was a very high percentage, forget what it was, of, of people who say like one of the top reasons they listen to podcasts is they feel like they have some sort of relationship with the hosts. Mm. And and I think that's something very true that I didn't understand until I started listening to podcasts is, and, and, you know, happily I have some kind of relationship with you guys, but even shows that I listen to where I don't know the hosts, there's just something very familiar and comforting about yeah. listening to a podcast that you listen to a lot. And, and it's it's really intimate. Very I, intimate. I discovered this pretty early on. I, I'm not a podcast listener. I don't like to uh, wear headphones or have things in my ears, and I can't concentrate on uh, what I, I'm working if I'm listening to something mm-hmm. and I, I no longer ri- uh, go on an exercise bike. So, like, I just don't th- – those places <laughs> don't exist for me. Um, so I didn't know, understand podcast culture until I, I literally started doing podcast. And it is striking, the difference, right? Because I've, yeah. done, I've done radio, I've done television, um, uh, and blogging is actually pretty – the closest analog. So mm-hmm. I was a participant in, like – blogging 2.0 kind of revolution right after 9-11. Mm-hmm. There's an explosion of public interest blogs that are kind of connected to that. And mine was one of the more popular ones at the time. And um, and so we all suddenly started attracting notice. And um, part of it was you got this incredible relationship with readers um, who um, – like so much closer than anything, like writing for any kind of other publication. It was bizarre. I remember one woman uh, mailed me some cookies. It wasn't even Nancy. Uh, it was <laughs> someone I didn't know mailed me cookies. At one point, and this was uh, somewhere in the middle of the on and off again uh, newspaper project with Richard Reardon, for which I, I maybe got paid like 500 bucks over oh two years. God. Like he became a multimillionaire by not giving people <laughs> like me money. Um, at some point I complained about this on my website. Like I was, I was moderately famous, more famous than I'd ever been. And I was less than broke. Mm-hmm. I was, and I, and I like, um, stupidly complained about it in public uh, on my oh, web no. log, like as a sad person. I'm in my thirties at this point. Yeah. <laughs> 
and people mailed me checks oh for more than a thousand dollars. Wow! Right? There wasn't. We didn't have all these tools that would make I'll it like super easy, easy right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, but because people had had, they developed a personal connection with me. So podcast is like that, except so much more because you're in there. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's and strange. I realized this in our um, uh, in my neighborhood. There's a guy who's a an actor in the local Shakespeare in the Park thing. And uh, who I'd seen play in the leads of this several times over the years, uh, didn't have any relationship with him. But he was uh, rehearsing one day as I was walking with my daughter. He's like, hey, Matt, uh, points at me. I'm like, okay. Oh, my God. Um, and he did because he's a podcast listener. And Aww. come to find out that – and he's Don't nice, out him. Nice guy. Um, uh Come to find out he'd been reading Reason for wow. like 10, 15 years. And he did see me in the neighborhood, knew who I was. Never occurred to him to stop me and say anything until he was listening to the podcast because podcast, it's more familiar. Yeah. It's, yeah. Like, it's your bros in your ears. Um, so, yeah, it's a completely different level. TV, it's 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 different. Yeah, You're, yeah. You are on a mountaintop broadcasting down. Yeah. yeah. And like you – like. But that's a f- I think that's a format thing, not necessarily a, a medium thing. Because like if there was a TV show so, like Joe Rogan was like three hours of just like guys talking like bros. Like well, I mean, the independence was guys talking like bros. Yeah. And um and yeah, we get a little bit of that, but still it's just TV is such yeah, a different it's I where, so. it's and where I put famous it on people go. Whenever I want to put it on. Um I listen to this show. I've talked about it on our show, but I listened every morning to the show uh, in Israel, it's daily morning show, and they've been going for eighteen years and they just they just did their last episode, oh. and it, it it it's really hard for me. I have to say, like I I, I get like teary when you, talking about it, but it, it's such a. I've been listening to them for like five or six years. I, first of all, I've known them since I was a little like since I was a teenager. Yeah. I've been following these guys because they're famous media people. But it, it was my my morning routine, my connection to the country. I would text my sister every day, like, "Oh, did you hear what they talk about?" And like, I feel like I know these guys. And oh it's my god, when Kevin sad. and Bean broke, like stopped <laughs> Kevin and Bean were my I, like that's exactly how I You're felt such a piece of trash. I, I, I love, love Kevin it. and Bean and I Bean, they were together for years I don't even know how many years and it was only recently that Bean like retired or moved or whatever and then Kevin had a show with someone else and I never listened I just I couldn't no. it was like it was them too I mean I loved when Ralph I don't know did you listen I, you probably don't listen to, I you were gone don't spend a lot of time listening to Kevin and Bean they were great. I don't even know I, who okay. they are. They're just. Uh, I learned about Gordon Lightfoot because Bean was obsessed with the Edmund Fitzgerald. Really? And, yes, and he would always talk about it. And Kevin would make so much fun of him. That's but they true. were the radio show on K Rock, which oh, is uh, it's the oh. morning. Was that yeah. like Doctor Doctor Drew? Doctor Drew was in the evening. Okay. He was. That was a great. He did Love Line. Love yeah, Line he's coming on. You know who's a you know who's a big Chayla uh, fan? Who? Doctor Drew. Oh. He should be. Yeah, they met at uh, at Megan he's, Downs. He's re- really nice. We're gonna. But Kyla learned to everything she knows about um, about what roll up challenges. <laughs> I was gonna say about. I don't know why. I'm, like we, we say Why'd so many terrible pause? things because I don't know for some reason Matt's here and I yeah. feel like more responsible not to say blowjobs in front of him. But don't know why. Uh, Matt is. You could say a lot to him. Okay. I've learned. Um, <laughs> do you want to ask Matt about? Oh, I have like a lot of things. Okay, wait. We're gonna. I want to talk about Prague for a second because yeah. I thought you were gonna want to talk about Israel. No, in a second. Um, <laughs> pra- just for a quick second. So yeah. I, you spent a lot of time in Prague. You lived there for a few years, right? Right. Four years. Four Prague. years. 
did you go there? I, I just, this is my own personal nosiness. I have no, this is not it's like fine. important for anything, but did you go there with a job or yeah. did you go because you had this idea of like reporting on what was going on? And so you just like got on a plane, flew there and like planted yourself there. Um, I had been kicked out of uh, college after my freshman year because <laughs> I got bad grades and, oh my God. Um, and, uh, because I was spending all the time at the college newspaper, which had been one of the greatest uh, college newspapers in the country. You see Santa Barbara Daily Nexus. I was daily. Um, so I was, you know, assistant news editor when I was 18 years old wow. and and uh, did a ton of reporting and didn't go to class and they kicked me out. Um, for uh, one bad year, I uh, s- split time between Santa Barbara City College and Long Beach <laughs> City oh, College. I took classes there too. Uh, uh, I actually took a really good class there from a screenwriter who used to pal around with Charles Bukowski and wrote oh. for uh, Bonanza. Wow. He was a really good guy. I went to the track with him over in uh, Los Alamitos. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, but for the last two years, what would have been my, my junior and senior year of college, I worked again at that same college uh, daily but as a university paid employee because mm-hmm. they had people – in that, my case, I was doing typesetting, which is this ancient art mm-hmm. of putting the – Pasting up the paper every night and put and sending it to the printer, and this was a good university job. Um, uh, and I got paid a lot of money uh, for then. And um, so for the first year, I just drank it like you do, and <laughs> and and also just spent it on all, all my friends who were like working right with me in the same room and going to class and making like a hundred bucks uh, every two weeks oh stipend. God. And I'm like chilling, making <laughs> making thirteen bucks an hour in nineteen eighty eight. Um, with overtime, so like nice. you had a lot of money. Bennies, that's yeah. money. Um, but um, it was fun and everything. And I played in bands and did all that. But uh, I, I didn't want to be one of those non-students who hang around the college town <laughs> for even a half a day <laughs> after I would have graduated. Um, so I knew my contract was up in June of 1990, and I knew that I would have a break during um, Thanksgiving and Christmas holiday of 1989. Um, to like be at my dad's house in Long Beach and try to figure out what what to do next with my life, mm. and it was a bad time to figure that out because the newspaper media newspaper industry was finally starting its long long slide down, and so even friends who hadn't been kicked out of school were having a diff- more difficult time getting internships for big papers, and uh, and I had screwed up, um, and so do I do that? Do I like work and paste up somehow, or you know mm. do? Uh, what I've been doing the last couple of years, that sounds boring. Do I go back to school? Like, Ugh. which school? Am I going to go to Cal State Hayward and, like, get a journalism <laughs> degree? Good God. Um, so it all looked bad. And I'm sitting on my dad's couch and I'm watching CNN and it's November 1989. What's on CNN in November of 1989? Oh, I don't know. The entire world right. collapsing and becoming different. <laughs> and including in Prague, and the Velvet Revolution was led um, by students, people who were exactly my age, uh, who like literally named the revolution in part because they liked the Velvet Underground, who I also <laughs> like, um, were overthrowing communism, and I've always hated commies. Right. Um, and they were doing it without firing a shot and while being rad um, and brave. And I'm like, that so sounds— like the opposite of us and Total opposite yeah. of us. Um, that sounds kind of interesting. Uh, why don't I— not spend all my money on booze or my friends for the next <laughs> few months, save some money, and go to Europe as soon as I can. And um, and Had go- you been to Europe before? No. Had you been I, abroad? God, no. I've been to Mexico once, like in uh, Tijuana. Wow. Or uh, a little bit uh, south of um, Rosarito Beach. But, um, no, I'd been to six states in my life, and I'd been to Mexico once. And, um, and then I drove 
across country with uh, uh, Long Beach Pal. Um, and I ended up in New York City in 1990 in the summer. Oh, my God. Um, I think they had 2,300 murders that year. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they had the, the beheading in Tompkins Square Park oh, happened oh, while I was here. Yeah. Um, it was frightening. Man, it was frightening. I was living uh, like just you have to run – Step over junkies uh, everywhere just to get your 17 newspapers back when they had 17 newspapers. Uh, it was like you had to – and I'm from California. I was scared right. of wow. all this. Um, just terrified. And I flew out one-way ticket to, to France on July 4th because I'm that wow. kind of jackass. <laughs> and, uh, and I hope you didn't take a French airline. Uh, I was like – Pay the, the Americans at least. Uh, it's one of those uh, – TWA. I, I, I don't know if they have it anymore, but like you you pay uh, um, uh, a ticket and you just show up to the airport and they'll oh. either get you or not. Like for several days, yeah. to get those services. And a travel, a travel agent probably booked that for you too. No, uh, no? certainly no. It's just like this total cheap jack. It's like, <laughs> um, you know, I I went over there with like four thousand dollars, literally Amazing. in my pocket, um, and a guitar and a backpack, and um, and I ended up in Prague uh, by August, and um, stayed there. And I didn't. Uh, I thought I was going to go write a novel because I had a pretensions of doing that, and I had a thing that I'll show you that'll freak you both out. <laughs> okay. Absolutely. When we're done taping, what time do we have here? We have time. Good. Yeah, uh, I'll show you what the the raw material I had to start that. Oh my novel. god! You have it still? I still do. Oh, I'm so it's, awesome. it's in this. It's in this apartment. Oh, good. Um, but um, I was there for a little while, and then like it was fascinating, but also I didn't speak Czech, and it was interesting. And and I at this point I thought I I had war wearily quit journalism. I was 22. I just turned. It's like yeah, I'm done with it. Enough already. Yeah, this journalism. Um. <laughs> But then I was there. I was like, God, I really want to do journalism. So I wrote uh, everybody I knew, um, uh, every contact that they'd had. And I think the only people who even got back to me was The Nation and Rolling Stone. And both of them were like, they're that no. little kid. <laughs> um, but then I had um, – uh, I started lobbying all my friends because a bunch of us had all either graduated or decided to stop right. what we were doing um, in uh, June of 1990. And a lot of them were traveling through Europe Um and I'd met up with them at different places, like, hey, let's meet uh, July 15th at the Hard Rock in Amsterdam, 4 o'clock. Oh. And we would. And we didn't have cell phones. God, I like, love that. So cool. I that, yeah. uh, and so we did that. And so I uh, met up with some Czechs who are all, you know, my age, revolutionary types, um, and who spoke English. And we got an apartment together. And um, and I just started trying to recruit my friends. Like, Prague is amazing. It's so cheap. It's awesome. Just come here. Come here. Um, and – they started to, and there was a, a moment in November. I had just come back from a weird uh, trip with some Macedonian video pirates, and uh, and I came back <laughs> into – and they had this box at the post office called Post Restaurant where you just leave notes. Oh, wow. um, and that's it. Like I, I had people uh, mail me hash from Amsterdam <laughs> to Post Restaurant <laughs> in Prague. It's great. Um, but uh, so good. Um, I went there to check my notes. And it was like, hey, we're in town. And then, hey, we're in town. So there was like uh, six of us um, from the college paper who all happened to be in town oh. at the same time. We're like, wow, what a coincidence. That means we have to drink all the beer right now, which we did. <laughs> and we have to, at this, uh, agree to start a paper. Because uh, wow. we had always talked about in college, wouldn't it be – because we had a lot of talent um, uh, in the room. And uh, like wouldn't it be great to like take over the Galita Sun or whatever, like start – or take over the Santa Barbara News Press. But now here we were. Um, it was an exciting time to be there. We wanted to do journalism even though we didn't speak Czech. Um, and so we made a lot of collect calls that night. Blitzed out of our oh minds to various uh, parents and like, will you invest? Uh, will you buy two shares? <laughs> they cost four hundred dollars each. That like literally, we're just making it up. 
Um, and we got, uh, I think, some pledges for like four or $5,000 that night oh, drunkenly wow. from a collect call phone booth across the street. I've never heard this story. From the pub, Umedvitku, which happened to be the secret police pub. Uh, oh, my God. Um, uh, for a long time, famously. And so we're like, okay, let's start a paper. And that was November 7th of 1990. Um, and the first uh, edition of the paper came out on March 7th of 1991. That's incredible. Wow. And how long were you there for? Uh, paper lasted until uh, March or February of 95. Oh, wow. I was there for most of it. I spent one of those years. I was in Bratislava most of the time uh-huh. uh, covering the that country's first year of independence, um, which is oh. really interesting. Um, I got beaten up by skinheads. On, oh, that's exciting. On the moment <laughs> that they, they, uh, they became an independent country. That was great. Wow. Um, but saved by a, a, a short girl. <laughs> um, who came in there and told him to knock See, it off. See, we're useful. Uh, but anyways, yeah, so I was there for, for five, paper lasted uh, those four years. Uh, I was there and then I was in Budapest for three afterwards. So wow. I went there with the intention of going there because of what happened. I had no connection. I didn't even know that Slovakia and the Czech Republic were different things. <laughs> right. I didn't understand what Slavic languages are. I still kind of don't, but I can, <laughs> I can, I can yell at a dog. Um, and, uh, um, and I didn't know that we'd be starting things up, but we did. Uh, and That's awesome. it was fun. What a good story. I wish yeah. our kid, like I have, you know, kids, I wish they had opportunities like that. It feels like those kinds of things just don't happen anymore. Well, I mean, I don't know. I've never understood then or now that argument. Um, I, I, I had friends from back in the LBC. And they all say, oh, boy, I wish I could, I wish I could do what you're doing. I'm like, right. You could, you, you can't save, you can't right. save money sure. at your job for four months. You can't not have a payment on a car. Uh, Cause that's yeah. what they all did. They yeah, all yeah, like yeah. 21, 22, you start, you start yeah. the process. Um, you can't uh, not have college loans. Like I, there's a bunch of things I didn't saddle myself with and I was willing to go one way with a small backpack and, and kind of, you know, adapt to what came and that it was That's rough sometimes. Right. Yeah. Um, but also it's actually really easy. It really, really absurdly easy. Um, the thing that is that the real fortune is just uh, by virtue of age, like being 21 in 1989 is yeah. like the ultimate blessing for me. Yeah. Like that, that is incredible luck. Um, and I'm glad that I wasn't stupid enough to not take advantage of it. it. But also, I didn't have good career prospects at all. Like, my choices were not good. It'd be different (laughs) if my choices were good. There weren't. Like, all the doors were bad. You weren't going to, like, dentistry school. No. Yeah, I mean, the thing is about, like, being that young, too, is, like, you're not, you know... Like, the older you get, the more, like, cautious you are and the more you realize, you know, oh, I don't, I want to, like, do the right thing and, you know, not take risks. And sometimes being young, like, there are so many great things I did for my career when I was younger that I wouldn't do today because I'd be like, that that's kind of a stupid you risk second to guess take. yourself. That is yeah. true. But yeah. I, that back then didn't seem like a risk because right. I, you know, I was dumb. <laughs> so. I know. It's terrible of me to say this because I work on a college campus, but like so many of my students should not be in college. <laughs> like they should be out there doing things like that and having yeah. experiences and... But, like, nobody tells them that, you know, and and they think that they're doing the right thing and they're, they're on the right path. And yeah, I don't know if you're listening, guys. Get off quit, uh, get off campus. Like, no, go, but you know what else is cool? Go is live in the world. You've been doing, and I think Michael as well, and I, I don't know about Camille, but, like, your entire career, which has, you know, spanned many years, you, you've been in the same old. industry. And you've gotten, like, better, like, better and better. And I think a lot of people our generation and younger, they're not going to, like, perfect— or like yeah. become, 
you know, like professional in the same industry. Like people bounce around a lot mm-hmm. more, which has its advantages, but also means that you can't like really become the top of your field because you're always kind of going between fields. I, but I think it's also kind of cool to go in between fields. You know, my wife was a journalist for 20 years, mm-hmm. 15 years, something like that, and then uh, became a PI. Um, so cool. And then became French. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> she was, I think, French from the beginning. Um, but uh, I, I think that's also really great and brave, too, because mm-hmm. you're doing it not exactly when you're young and dumb, but when you're uh, sort of closer to middle age. Yeah. Um, and it opens you up to new experiences, new people, and that's all to the great. I feel really uh, fortunate of having stuck in journalism. I always loved journalism, loved newspapers so much, and and, and uh, if my younger self knew how little I read newspapers now, he'd be so disappointed because <laughs> yeah. I just I've romantically attached them. I mean, yeah. I physically put them together for a long time, yeah. created them out of nothing, you know. I read uh, them every day. And, and yeah, in Israel, the week, there's like the weekend papers. I guess they have here too, but it's like such a ritual, mm-hmm. yeah. like reading the weekend papers. And now... Both like attention span and I don't know what, but I can't like. It's the quality. Like, I mean, uh, so many Sundays of my life in all parts of the world, but, you know, mostly when in America, when you can get them nice and fat, you would sit with a Sunday New York Times in a park, hungover. And, uh, uh, you know, maybe football on television or maybe a, a yeah, shit, it's like shitty reggae band in the in the little amphitheater or whatever. Um, you would do it and you would sort of pick through and you'd have all these nutrients in it. And now, I you know, it comes to my house and I can't be bothered to look at it, which, yeah. is, which makes me sad. But what I'm happy about is that, yes, I'm still in the same broader industry and trying to get better and have somewhat of an audience and people who appreciate what I do. Um, because I know so many people who are more talented than I am or was who left because usually um, they would make a a professionally smart decision that turned out not to be. Like they took the job at Newsweek back when Newsweek was not what it is now um, because, you know, of course any 26-year-old should work at Newsweek and then you would prematurely butt up against a really alienating bureaucracy and a crappy paper um, uh, or a crappy news organization that uh, didn't really care about individual uh, writers and so you'd get burned out. Or they wanted to go, you know, take a shortcut into activism. And so I know plenty of people who are really good who now work for Human Rights Watch or who work for ACLU or or offshoots of both since both places have been – had their own issues. But like who – like how can I – affect the change that I want. So I, I have yeah. some respect for that too, but I feel sadness because I know how good they were um, at doing the journalism. So I feel very fortunate. Um, part of that is just never having that experience of doing work that I don't want to do. Right. Um, sometimes I've been offered jobs or, or to do work I didn't want to do and at great you know, momentary cost of – of uh, of the demand in my household for money, I'd say no. But this kept me in the game and actually yeah. made me viable in the long term in a way that I, I love that. Were you surprised by how much the fifth column is like? I imagine a, a big part of your professional career now. Yeah, it's uh, it's totally shocking. It doesn't make yeah. any sense to me. <laughs> uh, I mean, it was just really it was, it was something to make ourselves laugh. Yeah, um, and. You know, we only started doing the Patreon after three and a half years right, right. of doing this. And, um, and you know, the levels that we sent for Patreon, including the Never Fly Coach level, <laughs> we were laughing. Like, we're like, no one's going to pay this. That is insane. I pay. Uh, that's what I mean. <laughs> I was maybe, Never Fly Coach right from the Maybe the Jews. But you know, Haile, I told her husband that that's what it costs yeah, to I listen did. to the podcast. I did. He's like, why are you paying this money for this? Po-? I'm like, it's the 
price. Yeah, I don't, <laughs> just, I don't know. Yeah, I honestly, you make fun of me no, for buying cheap I, products on Amazon. But let me tell you something. Honestly, like I thought in my head, like maybe the guys will like me more if I pay it, the but most. But it's true. Like, they do. If I pay five dollars, they're never going to like me. I have to pay the most so that they'll they like do. me, and it worked. I think. I I should <laughs> tell you that the psychology <laughs> of paying subscribers is just going to be an enduring mystery for I know for me and and I'm no, but it, I'm feel, glad it feels great. It feels great when when you guys launch Substack and I got a new job around that time, I think, or a little before, like, it feels good to be able to support, like, <laughs> it sounds bad to say that it's like giving to charity because obviously you guys aren't a charity. No. But you feel good about yourself. No, it's— Supporting it's, somebody I'm, that you like their work. Yeah. I'm absolutely fascinated in this role in the media economy, and I'm really glad to take part in it um, because it's the replacement of the Eat Your Wheaties subscription model. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to subscribe to the Wall Street Journal because you're in business and it'd be rude not to, and or you yeah. have to subscribe to your local paper because that's what people do. Um that model, which is also, you know, democracy dies in darkness. It's sort of like you hold a gun, mm-hmm. subscribe to this, I'll shoot your dog. Um, as opposed to affinity. Affinity, I am just expressing my fondness for a yeah, thing yeah. that I like and appreciate. Um, that's it. And I also want more of it. Like, you know, the whole subscription model is really, I mean, I think it's really interesting when you tell people like, hey, if you pay, you'll have more. Yeah. So you can enjoy it, you know, even more. <laughs> Like it, it just makes so much sense when you say it sounds so simple, right? Yeah, but it's new. And we lucked out it, a lot in in our uh, you know f- flip decision making process on that in terms of setting levels. In terms of oh, okay, yeah. we'll just do an extra one a week for paying subscribers, and and we'll uh, you know read and respond to their e- their e- yeah. emails, mm-hmm. which turned out to be a, a, actually a really smart thing to do, even though we didn't think about it in any kind of smart way. We're just sort of doing it. Yeah. A lot of people are trying to figure out how to monetize their own sub stacks or podcasts or whatever. Right. Um, and they are in a different position just because they didn't happen to make the stupid right decision right. about yeah. those things. So, I think we, I think Kyla and I were talking about that. And, and first of all, when we started the podcast, I think it was very clear that we're starting it with no expectations because like if you're like too mechanical about it and you're like, we're going to do a podcast and we're only going to talk about this and this and then we're going to target this audience and segment that. It's like – It's not fun. You have to do it because you th- like exactly. we think we're fucking hilarious. So we talk no, to each other. No, you think you're hilarious. <laughs> I wonder why anyone listens to this podcast. Let's – who's we, Kimosabi? But okay? yeah. they do. They, uh, I don't know. They came out to a happy hour yesterday that I know. weren't even related to you. <laughs> I know. But like, but like I – I really enjoy doing it. It's just yeah. a hobby for me. And, and also I don't want to get talk to people that we like. Right, so. But also we both have jobs outside yeah. of this. And so like people keep saying to me, like, how are you going to grow? How are you going to get more listeners? How do you this? I don't want to think about that because I enjoy doing it right yeah. now. The second it's going to become a pressure to me, I'm not going to enjoy it anymore. I have a very pressuring job. I know what that feels like. I don't need this thing that I really like yeah. to become that. So you get stuck in a way because, yeah, I mean— Obviously, who doesn't want more listeners and how? who doesn't want to grow more? But I don't want it to ruin what we have. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm not sure how Yeah, to we're, we're also kind of in a sweet that. spot where I, I think we had like, I don't know if beginner's luck is the right term. But, you know, we were very smooth sailing at first. Um, we, we got a we lot. We literally have very few listeners. Why are you why, making it sound why like are you we're saying so that? popular? We have. I don't want to like, <laughs> I don't want to talk numbers. But I don't even know numbers, but I have a feeling <laughs> I know. I know numbers very well. <laughs> Um, 
but we, you know, like at first it all started out with like, you know, puppies and rainbows and people saying like how much they love us, blah, yeah. blah, blah. And then, you know, and then you start growing a little bit and then all of a sudden you get people being like, you know, what you said is utter bullshit. <laughs> and, you know, all of a sudden things fail and we have a, we have an interview that we record and something doesn't work and it doesn't oh, record. And, and you start dealing with these, these pressures of like, okay. Like we're kind of, and I think you were here actually one time when I came out of the studio after a, a yeah. really bad interview and you were like, and I might be making this up, but that's kind of the fatherly advice that I took from you. You were like, this is what separates the boys from the men. <laughs> like there's, you know, if, if you can get past these hurdles, yeah. like this is, you, you know, you have a podcast. Okay, we Does should that talk sound about like something you said or like, something I No, made yeah, up? absolutely. <laughs> um, I probably was doing it in the spirit of like, just either uh, uh, put it up and accept uh, uh, not the perfect quality or like take, take the loss. Like, yeah. Screwed up. Yeah. Um, I mean, certain Lord knows it's happened to us, but I think the, the uh, being mindful of making sure that it's always fun and it doesn't become a thing that creates its own unfunness is absolutely critical to, yeah. to anything. Cause I mean, mm-hmm. when you're having fun, you're being creative. That's just right, it. Right. Like, like that's, yeah, that's why so are we, st- why are we starting things? Why are we doing things? Yeah. And we enjoy talking to each other. But it's not like we talk that often. You so. enjoy talking to me. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> anyway, if you know another Orthodox person yeah. in the market for a new host. We got a lot of listeners. Yeah. So <laughs> wait, let's talk about Israel before we stop. Okay. Then we're we already to, an hour and a half. Send, uh, send Matt on his way. I know. Um, oh wait. And the angels. Okay. We'll have two more topics really quick. Okay. What is, um, so you were in Israel recently. So I heard. With you. I was there. <laughs> Uh, it was for, so wild. It was so crazy. I remember that. getting up on, because I was already in the country, and I went to meet you guys at the airport, and I got on the bus, and I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> it's Matt Welsh and Michael Moynihan and, like, a bunch of people that I like and know, what are they all doing here in Israel? But I think it was really fun. Um, what, like, I don't know, what what was the most surprising thing? People are always, like, surprised by I, all kinds of things. Um, I went in there so ignorant of Israel uh, in any way, shape, or form, or that part of the world. I've never been to the Middle East or Africa. Uh, farthest I've, closest I've been to any of that was I was on the island of Rhodes, Rhodos, mm-hmm. which close. is, you know, yeah. uh, a short uh, plane, puddle jumper away. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was wonderful to go to a, one of these trips with zero expectation that I was going to produce anything. Yeah. Um, I ended up actually, did, did an interview there, and and I will do work that's that emanates from that. Um, which is all to the better, but it was literally just to learn and to to see things and to soak it up. And um, uh, it was it was nice to know that um, I was I was very bewitched by the place. I'm I'm not I'm not done with Israel. Mm. I'm certainly not done with Tel Aviv. I have Jerusalem in my dreams often, mm. um, even though I prefer t- Tel Aviv. Uh, it's just like a place to be because mm. of. You know, drugs and <laughs> gays and stuff. Uh, uh, no, Jerusalem is the best. I am the Tel Aviv and, and Chayla is a Jerusalem. So you know what? Yeah. We can all have. Do you like Jews more or less since you went to Israel? <laughs> much more. Oh, much more. That's good news. It's yeah. different Jews, right? We have yeah, different yeah, Jews yeah. there. Uh, the thing, uh, one of the things I didn't realize was, um, and there's going to be a lot of those things because I was so ignorant of the place, but. Uh, uh, the meaninglessness of uh, certainly the word white, but oh, yeah. like, and but also just how many Arab Jews there are, and how yeah. much that's part of the, the political 50, 50, yeah. political culture of the place. Just uh, couldn't have been more ignorant of that. Um, didn't realize that that basically Tel Aviv was like this Art Deco Miami type yeah. of place, which I, <laughs> I like. Conan a lot. O'Brien said Miami, but with less Jews. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that sounds about right to me. Um, uh, I was. Uh, 
strangely, um, I, I was very bewitched by going to the City of David archaeological dig mm. and by Old Town Jerusalem, but also being in Nazareth. Um, yeah. uh, and uh, and then going to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Sepulchre. Oh, my God. Yeah, that church is incredible. It's incredible. Beautiful. And it's so I weird. I the know. The story of it is weird. Uh, it's just like the different factions and different yes. windows. Yeah. Um, a guy who uh, the who said the church that I attend in, uh, in Brooklyn uh, had gone there like just after or just before oh. I did. And he was hanging out with one of the factions in the church and getting like the inside That's gossip. That's so uh, cool. Uh, it's like a giant fire hazard. Oh, like, God. <laughs> but it's How? incredible that I, because I had never been, I go to Israel a lot. I had never gone there until a few years ago and it's like mine. It's yeah. I tell people too, even if you're an complete atheist, like just the history of, yeah. of like yeah. some of these holy places. It's very interesting. No, I mean, it's that's that is part of culture. Um, yeah. So, uh, and it coincided nicely too with my eight-year-old has been going on a lot of sort of documentary and, and reading Jags about ancient Rome, ancient Egypt. Oh. Uh, she would love to do more on Persia. We haven't really gotten a lot of that, but uh, Greece. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, we actually, I looked for any possible good documentary about the city of David because she's really into like, you know, Egyptian pyramid archaeology documentaries of which there's five trillion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> city of David is just like anti-Semitism. S- some weird like fat evangelical guy. <laughs> um, Anti-Semitism who, in Hollywood. Uh, is the who is like the low budge handheld camera <laughs> and then the guy at the site going, yeah, we're friends with our evangelical people and, and, the, and, the, and the evangelical guy's like, every word in the Bible is the literal yeah. truth. <laughs> And the other guy's like, yes, and we're using it to dig. It just- you should look up the naked archaeologist. Oh, Coco yeah. would love that. Is he actually he's naked? No, 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 okay. no. His name is Simcha Yakubavich, I think, and he's he had a show on TLC, and it's really good about archaeology in Israel. Oh, it's that's kind great. Of ancient stuff, yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, uh, and he'll like reenact different scenes from the Bible, like to see if if it could have happened. Like he does the David and Goliath scene, and oh, really? Like he does it like with real like people and like how it's described in the Bible, and it's it's good. That's great. Thank you. Yeah, for the, isn't uh, Indiana Jones based on an Israeli archaeologist? No, based on a um uh, <laughs> a based Nazi on or? a Los Angeles archaeologist oh. whose museum you can go visit in Los Angeles in Silver Lake by appointment only. Oh my God, you bought me a present from there, didn't the you? The Holy Land. Experience, yes, yes, but but there's some yes, maybe you bought me candles, Shabbos candles, Dead Sea yes, Scrolls or something. There is some what Dead Sea? What are you talking about? Connection. Didn't he find the Dead Sea Scrolls? That guy did not know. Oh, um, okay. No. There might be some other guy who did that part. I guess the, I, I assume Jones. a lot of people are claiming to be the inspiration there's for Indiana Jones. <laughs> but the main one was is, is this guy at the Holy Land Experience. That's so funny. Um, what was a favorite? Your favorite thing you ate? Um. Just the hollow bread, the the few scraps that I could get out of Jesse Singles, like <laughs> pause, was really good. As you know, um, we were cheated out of uh, proper uh, Tel Aviv eating, and that it's a source of contention. Heart. That breaks my heart. Um, but uh, no, just the the you'll bre- go back. The bread was luscious. I'm absolutely you'll go back. Go you back have friends that. there uh, now. Yeah, and, um, and it was you know it was interesting to be there right at the time, right after the elections, and yeah, and seeing. I mean, it couldn't have predicted it went as crazy as it has gone since then. But yeah, they, I think the first terrorist We've had like shootings at every place we've been to. <laughs> Pretty much, right? <laughs> the tax museum um, uh, outside of our hotel. We're, we're, we're going to do a trip to Israel for fifth column listeners. That's a, that's our dream. That are is we? A, yeah. What do you mean, are we? We talked about it. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's going to cost them money, but like we're going to do it. 
It's going to be like a, one of those uh, Broadway cruises. It's gonna, exactly. Where like it's going to be like featuring Matt Welch and like exactly. there's going to be somebody like random like. But then there right. has to be a murder. So you have to figure out who the. Uh, <laughs> I'll murder someone. Murder Don't worry. mystery. Yeah. Okay. Last question. Yes. Um, wh- Why is Shohei Otani the best baseball player ever? His hair, I think. <laughs> yeah. Uh, is a, a strong uh, part of that. I don't know. I think there's there's a theory that he comes from a small like mountain town. And oh. he just like uh, ate ate the right uh, uh, breakfast cereals, and he's. Uh, but I think really the hair is it's, is part of it. I agree. He's a an incredible athlete. Um, like Samson, see how I'm obviously. tying it into it it's very uh, thick and black. It's and, true. And he preens. He preens like a like yeah. a bird yeah. a little bit. Like he's always taking off his helmet and yeah. sort of shaking it off. And <laughs> um and that kind of kink for performance. <laughs> like he loves to be in the pressure pack situation, the end of the World Baseball Classic, which is one of yeah. the greatest moments in, in modern baseball history. He just loved it. He loved it actually more than Mike Trout did and because he struck him out. But yeah. but also like uh, I'm not sure Mike Trout loves those situations. Um, right. Angel's great, you know, Hall of Fame caliber player and teammate of Shohei Otani's. Otani, you know he yeah. loves it. Like uh, so – it's yes, he's this incredible athlete. He's the fastest runner to first base in I baseball. In crazy. addition to being a pitcher who can throw 100 miles an hour and and hit the ball a trillion feet, um, but uh, I think it's that little extra spice yeah, of I agree. being a pretty boy. My kids are, as you know, huge, huge Angels fans, and it really bothers them that people always talk about Babe Ruth because they're like ready to put Babe Ruth out. Like yeah. they feel that Shohei is the best player ever and enough talking about Babe Ruth. He was, and they will go on and on for hours. How if Babe Ruth played today, he wouldn't even be in the top 10, top 20. He would be like 110 he, years old. I don't old. know. I don't, do you agree with that? Or? No, Babe Ruth is special. Um, he also played uh, against much inferior competition. He really was a tremendous athlete before he, he was. ate every single hot dog and <laughs> drank every single beer <laughs> before the age of 25. Yeah. I mean, he was a pitcher yeah. and he could also steal bases and right. hit 16 triples a year. And like, he could do a lot of different things. He just was a gigantic glutton um, and uh, and had this, you know, great hand-eye coordination. He was a great athlete and, and that those, uh, like, this person couldn't compete in that era arguments always uh, come up against the problem of the 20-year rule, which is that yeah. greatest players, they last for 20 years. They're still yeah. pretty good 20 years later. If, right. the, if the league... Uh, quality had changed so much yeah. they wouldn't be able to well, look play at Tom Brady at age 40 Tom Brady crying out loud yeah. let's discuss Tom Brady for another hour now no, yeah. I'm just kidding <laughs> um, um, okay so when you come next time to Long Beach we'll go to a game absolutely because we I'm, get like really we have tickets like really close I'm uh, I'm coming I'm going to be out there for, for at least half of June so right. so we'll do Shabbat we'll go to a bar <laughs> we're going to go to Angels game your whole itinerary. just send me your calendar I'm going to fill it up with tons of stuff thank you and then is there any yeah. fast in the middle or something you participate Probably. in I don't have to do that yeah. oh I'm, I'm going to be in Israel till June 7th so do all your family stuff before okay and then I'm back <laughs> June 7th and then we can just hang out the rest of the time deal I'm going to send uh, some fruit roll-ups with you <laughs> I'm not taking your goddamn that fruit roll-ups just the weirdest thing man you can ship it. My if nephew it's that wants, important. To, wants to sell them for twenty shekels a pop. Well, and I said we'd go fifty fifty. So it's ridiculous. Okay, we have our friends waiting for us, so we should. Uh, Matt, thank you so much. Matt, thank you for having thanks me. Thanks a million. We're going to do this honor. again. A huge honor. It's our so. honor. It's literally our honor to have you. Like, if I wasn't religious to you, I would like bow down to you. But that would be like idol worshiping. So, <laughs> one of the top three <laughs> offenses in Jewish law. 
So I'm not going to do that. Instead, she'll just uh, make a statue of you and put it up in her (laughs) mantle. Totally fine. (laughs) Let's hope that I uh, know how to hit this button correctly. Yeah, hopefully it was recorded. If not, this was really fun. Yeah. I think we did. It was worth it anyways. Yeah, it was. Thank you. Thanks, guys. 